how does this building need to be organized? What's the best practice right now for, you know, uh, well, neonatal intensive care unit. I, I did yeah, one of those wow. in Eugene, and that was the most complex project I ever uh, had to design because it was just, you know, the space itself wasn't crazy complicated, but all of the different systems, the different gases. But at the same time, like what I was trying to do was make it a place where it was a, a nice place to be. Uh, as it turned out, um, we got to enjoy it if that's the right word when uh our first son was born he oh. spent he spent a few days in the nicu that i had designed and and uh that was the, kind of a full circle wow opportunity as a designer yeah wow and did you do a good job with it good enough you know? <laughs> <laughs> it worked for you right yeah i mean all's well that ends well And welcome to Tomversations. That's T H O M Versations, where the H makes all the difference. How the H are you? I'm Tom Cocaine, your host, and I'm doing well. You know, I had a couple of weeks vacation from my job, and that is always nice. And it doesn't matter how long it is, it's always too short. But the great thing about vacation is it gives you time to get perspective on things. And if you heard the last conversation where I talked about the death of our dog, Daisy, and how that really affected me, and I thought quite a lot about that on my vacation. And death of a loved one, it kind of gives you pause, and that makes you reflect on life. And so while I was you know, doing my thing, not having to work, that's the main thing, this thought kept reoccurring to me, and that is, am I living my best life? What do I really want to be doing? Am I already doing what I want to be doing? Is it something else? What can I do to have an even better life? Now, I've got no firm answers about any of those things, but I do know that the pursuit of happiness is a main goal in life. I am pretty happy. So do I need to change? How can I make my life happier? But then again, you know, the thing two that keeps recurring is financial wealth, gaining more financial wealth, um, just to live a life that better life upon retirement. That's really the goal right now. I'm 51. I've, I have no reason to hide my age, but I'm 51. So, you know, I, I think, well, damn, I've got like 14 years left of my working life, approximately. You know, you retire at 65. That's kind of what you do. You know, and this job that I have, I work in radio, you can do it much longer, you know, because it's not very hard on the body. It is that it's a lot of sitting, but um, it's something that I could do continuously for quite a while um, after, say, quote-unquote retirement age. But I'll tell you one thing for sure, and that is this little podcast show of mine, it's one thing that I'm doing that I enjoy it a great deal, uh, I so much. And I'm glad that you are here listening, sharing the ride with me. I, it's just so much fun. Um, yeah, thank you. But all right, let's get on to things. Let's get on to today's conversation. And it's about architecture. Yeah, you know, maybe you two, you look at a cool design building, you go, 
wow, what a cool design building. Then maybe your next thought goes to, how do they do that? Well, you'll hear from my friend Matt Brame, and he teaches architecture. I have long thought that architecture was this kind of lofty ideal and that the main job of an architect was to draw a blueprint of a building. Here's my blueprint of a building that I have designed. You must build it. But as you hear, that's just a small part of it. There's much, much more to it than that. And one of the great things talking to Matt, he comes from an education point of view. So when I ask my questions, and I come from a very basic understanding, more of an appreciation of what the discipline occupation is all about. But I've known Matt for a number of years. And after listening to our chat a few times now, I seem to glean something else from it each time. So there's a lot of good information to be gained here. And well, that's the point of this whole podcast. It's about sharing stories, experiences, and knowledge. And speaking of sharing, uh, share this podcast. Become a subscriber and tell your friends. There's only really one way to know how well the podcast is doing as far as people listening to it, and that is by downloads. Are people downloading it? How many downloads are there? And so, you know, that's the way to tell. If it, uh, There's no way to see if someone streamed it. Uh, I don't know why, but uh, that's the information I can get with what I've got going on here. Uh, and I won't get into that, but that's it. Just please subscribe tell your friends, spread the word. I'd like to see this podcast grow. Okay. And uh, there's no underwriter announcement today. So thank you for listening. You mean a lot to me, really. Okay, let's get to it. Here's Matt. Well, you know, thanks for coming <laughs> in, Matt. Really. Hey, it's nice to be here. Yeah, it's really great to yeah. have you. And uh, full disclosure, you I, I've known you for a long time. Well, for years, would you say? Yeah, at least. I mean, didn't we meet at uh, Moscow Brewing? I think. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. When, uh, like uh, right not long after Lucas opened it, probably. Yeah, I was, yeah. Uh, that's that was my hangout for quite a while. And mine as well. Yeah, and... Uh, <laughs> And uh, so, but we but we also talked about how your wife has a business and she's been yes. thinking about uh, advertising on this, but that yes. has nothing to do with this. I've been yep. wanting to talk to you about architecture for quite a while. Okay. So yeah. uh, what, would you feel comfortable introducing yourself? Uh, yes. My name is Matt Brame and uh, I'm a professor of architecture at the University of Idaho here. And... Uh, uh, that's, that's the smallest nutshell I can put it in. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure other... Aspects of who I am, where I come from, will emerge as we start talking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how long have you been teaching at the U of I? Uh, just really, I think, wrapped up my 15th year. Wow. Uh, we arrived here in 2004, uh, coming from Eugene, Oregon. And uh, I guess a little bit more bio on that. I, I grew up in the Midwest outside of Chicago and went to the University of Notre Dame to study architecture for five years. And immediately following that, moved out to Washington, D.C. and worked for a couple of architecture firms there. Yeah, five years, I guess. And that's where I met Patty, my wife. Uh, she had done similar, although she, was, she spent a year or two working for her senator from Oklahoma. Oh, wow. Uh, and so she was up on Capitol Hill and I was slaving away in an architecture firm. And then uh, I decided to go back to school because I wanted to teach. I'd gotten a little bit of experience teaching at Notre Dame and then also at Catholic University in Washington, D.C. Did a couple of summers there. And so I moved to Eugene, Oregon to get my graduate degree. And we ended up being there in Eugene for 11 years. 
Got my degree. That's a good place. Eugene is. is. Eugene's a nice town. Yeah, I I miss a lot of aspects of it. There there are some aspects I don't miss so much, but it's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy trying to get places there. I remember trying a little bit trying to get into Eugene and trying to find a certain road, but it's uh, yeah the way you get into town is not exactly clear. Yeah, it's not clear. (laughs) Right, but I I did enjoy it, Uh, especially like the coast and the mountains there were extraordinary. but then I, I ended up, uh, I was working for architecture firms there mm-hmm. uh, pretty much the whole time that I was going to school and then after school until the last four years, uh, I was teaching as an adjunct professor at uh, Oregon, uh, design studios and uh, drawing courses and that kind of thing, and then uh, got a tenure track position here. Mm. Uh, and so we moved here with our kids who were at the time four and six years old. Oh, and, wow. Uh, yeah. Wow. And they're no longer four and six. They're, no, they aren't. They're men. They are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Our younger son, Sam, is about to graduate from uh, high school here. Uh, and our older son, Will, is a junior studying music at uh, Western Washington University. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Everything's going on, dude. Yeah, tell me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so f- simple question right off yeah. the bat, and that is, so I, I, like I said, I wanted to talk architecture for a while just because uh-huh. I'm interested in it. And that sure. is, so what is architecture? Oh, geez, simple question. Simple question. I mean, that's <laughs> <laughs> you know, those simple questions because, I mean, I look at, at like a building and I go, that that is architecture. Ah, I see where that, I see. Right? Is it yeah, so? What yeah. is how small can it be to be architecture? How big can it be and still be architecture? I mean, or is it all right. architecture? Where is it? Well, I guess you know. Um, I should I should preface everything by saying you know architecture is a a huge uh, subject area, right? Um, and there are lots of competing and differing opinions about it. I only have my own, uh, obviously, and uh, I tend to have a, a fairly, um, what's the word I'm looking for, encompassing view of architecture. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, rather than being exclusive about it, uh, I tend to be more inclusive. And and I've it's one of the things that's always drawn me so strongly to architecture is that I feel like architecture really touches on everything uh, in our lives. Uh, so I, I, I think of it more so as a component, a critical and central component to the built environment, but even the natural environment as well, to some degree. I think the way I think of architecture is it's um, anything that we do to manipulate our environment, really. Um, I mean, I, we just discovered this morning there's a little hummingbird nest out in a tree right in front of our house. And, uh, and looking at the nest, I was like, well, that's architecture. That, that's something that created a, an environment within the bigger environment to suit its needs, even though it wasn't a human being who did that. I mean, I, so my uh, idea of architecture is very inclusive this space that we're in, the way that you've arranged the furniture, um, all of these things, they are manipulations of the environment to create situations that are more suitable for life or sociability or culture or whatever, protection from the elements, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, gardening, I think of as 
an extension of architecture. I'm manipulating the environment adjacent to my house in ways that, that allow me to enjoy the place more, to get the ground to produce for us, etc. cetera. Uh, but it's not just kind of random. I'm always thinking about it, you know, mm-hmm. the, the way that things align and um, how one space moves to another space and what the transitions are between them, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. so a lot of folks I know would, would not be quite so inclusive if you asked that question. They'd be much more specific to the point of, uh, well, this just crummy, you know, little garage. I'm not talking about this garage. But <laughs> yeah, we, we that's not, garage, that's yeah. a building as opposed to being architecture. Um, I've heard that distinction be made quite often where uh, people will argue that that building becomes architecture when it's doing more than than only serving a rudimentary purpose or when there is something being aspired to that is greater than um, simply putting a roof over one's head uh, or that kind of thing. And so, you know, people might argue that, well, that strip mall, that's not architecture because that's, it's, uh, it's not lofty. It's not aspiring to be something more. Um, I tend not to view it that way. I think it's all architecture. There's better and worse architecture for a wide variety of reasons, but I think it all falls under that same category. And again, that's why I'm so drawn to it because it really does, um, uh, it, it relates to all aspects of my life. Uh, Mm -hmm. so it's this kind of central thing, um, that draws so many different things together, music and culture and food and landscape and et cetera. So it's nothing really, does it have anything to do with design? Yes, well, I, mean, well, I, I guess think it, so. of course it has something yeah. to do with design, but it does it does it have to yeah. be purposefully designed, is, or is that? Uh, that's a very good question. I, I think uh, I, I guess I would argue yes, in the sense that um, if you create something that is a, a manipulation of your environment by accident, uh, it might be hard to say that that was in, intentional or uh, or designed. You know, um, design has intention. Yes. Okay. Uh, so like, okay, yeah. for, if we're going very minimalistic, mm-hmm. so if I'm digging a hole and I put the pile of dirt over here, that's not necessarily architecture. But no. if I, but if I put that, that, but I want that dirt and I use that dirt to say, uh, uh, build up a step or yeah. something along those lines, that would be part of architecture because it has a purpose. I, I think so. Again, I'm, I'm trying actually to be very inclusive. Uh, and, and I suppose there's a lot of examples that would test that notion. Yeah. Uh, this being one, (laughs) digging a hole. (laughs) That doesn't get much more minimal. (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) Well, you know, picking up a rock and moving it here, is that design? I, you know. If it has a, if you want it to do a certain thing. Exactly. You know. Or if it's in the way of something and I am creating, I'm, I'm manipulating my environment. For whatever purpose. This is blowing my mind, man, because <laughs> it really is. Because, you know, it's like, no, architecture is something with somebody's name on it, you know? Like yeah. Gary or... Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of some... And I'm, sure. Names aren't coming to me at the moment. But um, just like if there's name is on it, then that is architecture. But it doesn't even have yeah. to be so lofty. Can, I don't think so. 
as I said, some architect, some folks might house, argue that, know, that with me, but I, I don't yeah. think of it that way. I, I've also heard the expression high architecture used oh. pretty often where mm. there's a, the notion that it is, is all about um, making a statement in terms of design oh, yeah. or in the, you know, typically urban landscape, although sometimes in a rural landscape where there's, um, where it's really all about like the highfalutin notions of, uh, of what design can or should be. Um, but again, I, I tend not to make that distinction so much myself. Um, I, I really see it as a much broader spectrum than that without such clear divisions between high versus low versus whatever. I mean, one of the kinds of architecture or approaches to architecture, I suppose, that, that is really interesting and compelling to me is referred to as vernacular architecture, which is... Um, How you build a sentence? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's it, the intention or the, the meaning behind it is that it, it's architecture that was not designed by architects. That, that hmm. uh, We usually use it to refer to things like housing types from long extant cultures, uh, you know, particular approaches to, to creating places to live and dwell. Um, that were done, you know, on the part of the people that actually live there and dwell there, as opposed to hiring an architect. And, and so there's a lot of embodied knowledge in vernacular architecture that comes down through the centuries. It's, it's more and more rare, I, I would argue, these days. Um, but it's still there. You know, when I'm there in Italy and in a little hill town or something like those buildings really emerged out of uh, a kind of relationship with the land that human beings have had for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. So the materiality, the, the way they're organized, their response to the climate, uh, et cetera, that is what would be called vernacular architecture and, and really has an enormous amount to teach us about how to live with the climate, how to live in particular places on the planet. Um, it's not that you can't say that also about quote-unquote high architecture, depending on the architect. There are some really extraordinary architects out there who do extraordinary work in a very sensitive way, uh, who have learned from vernacular approaches to design, etc. But uh, And then there are those who don't, who don't give a rip about that kind of thing, and and it's really about uh, creating a showpiece, etc. So, uh, but to me, that's still all under the heading of, of architecture, you know, uh, good or bad, or offensive or inoffensive, right? Well, so so you're talking about how like uh, this extent, no, mm -hmm. is that right? Ex no, uh, vernacular architecture, yeah. where basically from mud hut mm -hmm. on up. Mm -hmm. Um, so what does then like architecture say about a society? Can it, what is it, does it tell something about a society? I think it certainly can. Um, I don't know if it is always intended to. Um, I think, well, there again, vernacular architecture clearly speaks about, if not the society, at least the relationship that human beings in a particular place have with that place. Right. Um, and, it would be very difficult, I think, to tease apart uh, other cultural elements from that, 
food uh, being the most prominent, probably. Um, but even music and those kind of things that, that emerge over time out of a particular place and uh, a particular group of people. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm not sure that, well, yeah. <laughs> now I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah, 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 a yeah, trip. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> but by the way, you know, before if, yeah. if there's something that you want me to cut out of this, that, okay. you know, don't don't worry about. This is not good. This is not live. Right. So you know, uh, just just keep yeah, that in yeah. the back of your head. So yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. hey, you know, I said something really stupid because <laughs> I am so prone to that. I, you know. Well, in that case, I just kind of I, I was thinking of too many things at once and kind of lost my thread. And so, yeah, that, I, I don't know that I said anything stupid, but I oh. didn't say anything profound okay. either. Well, well, when you stop and you go, well, I, uh, uh. I like, okay, just let you know, you're com- you can be comfortable here, say right, whatever right, you right. want. I'm not going to try to make, put a bad face on you out there. No, no. Uh, okay. Uh, so, um, so who, who are some of your favorite architects? Uh, wow. Uh, the, it's a very long list. Um, but you know, first one. First one, Francesco Borromini. And what is if I if I if you were to say he did that building there, would I know? Uh, if you were familiar with the city of Rome, you might. Um, he was uh, active in the 17th century. Um, uh, one of the great what we would call protagonists of the Baroque architectural movement. Um, in uh, in Rome specifically. Okay, I'm gonna Google this guy, Francesco. <laughs> Francesco. Yep, Borromini. Boro. There it is, Francesco Borromini. Yeah, yeah. Okay, just kind of. So I'm just gonna look up images here. Oh wow. Okay, so this is. <laughs> oh, okay. So if it, it's like anything that you would think of, like like you were saying, mm-hmm. uh, Renaissance architecture, you look at it and you think, okay, like there's a lot of. Uh, like uh, small statues within, mm-hmm. what, are, what are those niches. called? In, in niches. Right. I see that a lot. Aedicules, if you want a, a more highfalutin word for it. Yeah, that's a high architecture there. <laughs> yeah, and columns are big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I see. Okay. Well, yeah. what he was so doing was picking up on the past, mm-hmm. uh, but also adding his own invention to it. And to some degree, bending or breaking sort of... Uh, unspoken or assumed rules about how to do particular things. Wow. And, um, and, and in the 1600s, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and also drawing on a deeper past um, uh, from ancient Rome, uh, places like that. Well, specifically ancient Rome. Um, you know, he just, I don't know why he popped to mind because there's, there's any number of contemporary architects whose work I greatly admire as well. But because I do spend a lot of time in Rome and teaching in Rome, um, that's often foremost in my mind. Uh, it's, it's one of the things that really brought me to architecture. I have an older brother who uh, studied at Notre Dame, and as part of the program there, the third year of the program, you go and spend that academic year in Rome. So I saw him do this while I was a very impressionable junior in high school, and heard his stories and saw his slides and that kind of thing and thought that's something I want to do. Uh, so Rome as a place, Rome as an experience is, is one of the things that really brought me into architectural education uh, in the first place. And, and it's thankfully 
really, really present in my life still. Uh, so, and that's what you yeah. do. You take students there every I do. year. Like, yeah. Yep. I, I'm leaving on uh, August 31st to uh, go spend three months teaching 15 students there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And you're still doing that. And you've been doing that for since you came to uh, Uvalde. Almost. I started the program in 2007. Um, there was a kind of uh, fledgling-ish program in northern Italy at the time when I first arrived here. There had been a, a pretty robust program in Rome. Um but the person who really uh, coordinated that program had moved on to a different university. Mm. And, uh, and so I really saw an opening. Um, Patty had never been there. So in 2006, it was, you know, right about our uh, 10th anniversary, I guess it was. Yes. <laughs> 11th, I suppose. Uh, we went and spent a couple weeks there and I hadn't been back since I was a student, but uh I got in touch with some former professors and learned about, you know, options for renting apartments and studio space and came back and made a proposal to the faculty and that ended up being approved. And, uh, and so I started bringing students there in the summer of 2007 and did it for nine years in a row in the summer. And then a couple years ago, moved it to the fall semester program or to, into a program in the fall semester. And, it's still, uh, it's the only faculty-led, uh, University of Idaho faculty-led semester-long study abroad program. Uh, so the international... That sounds like that would be very valuable. <clears throat> uh, well, for, you know, for the university. I, I think and so. The, and, the students. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and there's a lot of people at the university who fully agree with that. The international programs office is thrilled that, that I decided to, you know, if I could move it to the fall. Um, it really hinges on student interest. You know, I, mm-hmm. I have to recruit, I have to sell the program to them and um, get them psyched about it. And we have to do a certain amount of work in terms of making it fit within our curriculum. Yeah. Um, but really, as far as I'm concerned, the, the more time you can spend there or anywhere uh, outside the confines of this country, I would argue, uh, the better, especially from the point of view of somebody studying architecture somebody studying design and the manipulation of the built environment, getting out of this place, which has wonderful things to teach us, of course, but getting out of it opens your eyes to other ways of doing things. And it really, to me, helps to create designers who are um, much more flexible, much more open to other ways of doing things, and I believe that that's a really critical component to being a reasonably good designer is openness and flexibility and, uh, and having to live in another culture and be uncomfortable, be challenged mm. about who you are, where you come from, what you like to eat, etc., cetera, uh, is really one of the most important or, uh, you know, uh, effective ways of encouraging that kind of thinking in students. So yeah, as long as I can keep getting students to go over there and as long as they keep coming back and saying, wow, that was life changing, uh, I will absolutely do it. It, It's the hardest work I've ever done. I always say this, but it is also by far the most rewarding work I've ever done as a teacher is bringing students, particularly students from, you know, small farming communities here in Idaho, many of whom have never been uh, east of the Rockies before, let alone in the center of uh, 
an almost 3,000-year-old city, which is arguably the cradle of Western civilization. So, yeah, I enjoy it. Wow. <laughs> Can I be a student just for, just hey, for a know. semester? Let me, and, and these are what these are just uh, undergrad students you take? or uh, Sometimes grads, okay. uh, but primarily undergrads. Uh, and, you know, I... It doesn't matter so much to me whether where they're at in the in the curriculum. Although I think there's a kind of sweet spot around the third year uh, of the program that they've by that point they're they're pretty well committed to studying architecture. They have developed a certain number of skills um, that will allow them to make the most of their experience over there. And uh, when they come back, they have some time as a student yet to put what they've learned kind of into practice. Oh, that's, that's and, valuable then. This yeah. makes it really valuable. Yeah. So, the, but really, you know, just about anybody, uh, whether they're grads or undergrads. So yeah. what is it about Rome and mm-hmm. the past that, uh, that, that would help students in the future? Uh, well, that, that's an excellent question. Uh, uh, the way to, that I would answer it is to refer to... Um, one of, and it's actually a couple of walking tours that we do when we're there in Rome that are led by a colleague of mine named Tom Rankin, who uh, has been teaching in Rome since the early 90s, at least, I think. Um, and he, one of the tours is focused on the imperial era in Rome. So, um, you know, the, the time from about Julius Caesar or Caesar Augustus anyway, through the fall of Rome. Roughly, it's about a 500 year period, but, uh, and, and then another tour that he does later in the the semester to some degree follows up on the same themes that he talks about in uh, regarding the imperial period, which have to do with things like water and waste and transportation and green space. And, and so we look at the city, uh, uh, and talk a lot about how they did things in the imperial era. Um, so, you know, aqueducts, for example, or how they dealt with the river or how they dealt with waste and those kind of things. Um, and then look at how the city is coping with those issues today. Mm. And so, and I guess, you know, bottom line is they did a lot of things very wisely back then <laughs> that maybe are not quite so being done quite so wisely today. Um, and that's a struggle and we struggle with it in this country as well. Uh, dealing with these issues, mm-hmm. they're, they're core issues that fall under the heading of architecture, how we manipulate our environment and how we make it work or how we, you know, contribute to the destruction of our environment. Um, it's a lot easier to contribute to the destruction of the environment, I would argue, today than it was back then. And, and we have a lot to learn um, about how to build, why we build certain ways, um, especially dealing with uh, a passive response to the environment. Just as an example, a, a courtyard, you know, designing housing around a courtyard space, especially in a hot climate, has a lot of advantages. It, it sort of, for one thing, it creates a potentially social space around an, a protected uh, interior space that is quasi-private, quasi-public. Also potentially protects you from the rain if it's arcaded around the outside. Uh, 
But it, if you then open the windows on the outside and it heats up inside the courtyard, the heat rises, it pulls in cooler air. So uh, not having to depend so much on fossil fuels uh, to cool our environment or heat our environment, you know, orienting things toward the sun, etc. Um, these are the ways that people, generally speaking, have been building for millennia. That there again, vernacular architecture is a, just a more direct response to uh, where you are on the planet. Mm. Um, and yes, we have a lot to learn about how to do that um, because we've gone through a period of time with the advent of fossil fuel usage uh, where we have convinced ourselves that we don't need to do that, that we can go really far to manipulate our environment, but at what cost? At what cost in terms of energy and material usage, et cetera? So at least on that score, um, there's an enormous amount to be learned from the past, uh, the pre-industrial past, right? But then with that, like you're talking about the environment, et cetera, there's also many more new things that mm-hmm. help the environment, like... Uh, well, can just, be yeah, absolutely cooling the the home in general with uh, you know uh, insulation etc. Mm-hmm. I would I would imagine that's that's a helpful thing. When, yeah, when it's not all bad. I, I don't mean to suggest that uh, that you know uh, scientific or industrial advancements are by definition uh, the bad thing to do. But if you can do well without um, consuming energy, then that's a better way to go. Yeah, you know, I was, um, uh, it's been quite a while, but uh, Elise and I, my wife, we went mm-hmm. to Greece. Mm-hmm. Um, and what blew me away was just how everything was made of marble. Mm. You know, streets made mm-hmm. of marble. Mm-hmm. I mean, homes, looks like the home is made of marble because yeah. it's a natural thing within the environment. Readily available, yeah. first off. Where in mm-hmm. the United States, we got a lot of trees. We, <laughs> yeah. We have yeah. a lot of trees, and, so many stick-built homes. Yep. And then that is, you know, managed wisely. Uh, Trees are a renewable resource. Um, So, uh, you know. Tough to grow marble. (laughs) Yeah, it is. (laughs) I have a colleague, actually, who uh, he teaches in uh, Copenhagen, and he just went on a trip, well, a trip that he and a colleague of his designed to, I think it's, I don't know how to pronounce it, Marmorolik or something like that in Greenland which is a now defunct quarry where they once upon a time uh, quarried the oldest marble, I think, known on the planet. And it's beautiful stuff. Uh, and so he and this colleague of his, and they they both teach architecture. Um, so they have this really intense uh, uh, interest in materials and uh, because of, I think a lot of this material is there in Copenhagen in various applications. Um, so they went to kind of research, well, what is there now? And it's just marble tailings like everywhere and, and buildings where, you know, the people used to live and work and, um, but a completely remote, desolate kind of environment. Um, but just beautiful marble laying all over the ground. His pictures and video from that were extraordinary, really amazing stuff. Wow. Just, uh, just using what you got. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, um, I think about uh, architecture and uh, uh, there's architects. Yeah. So, I mean, what does an architect do? I mean, if an architecture, we talked about architects, architecture can yeah. be m- very wide. What, what about an architect? What's their real purpose? Do we need them? Uh, I, I would 
I would say yes, we do. Um, if only because uh, in the absence of architects who take the time to learn and develop a, a kind of passion and caring for how architecture is done, um, we get a lot of stuff that's not done very well. Uh, that's done, you know, um, on the cheap, uh, only for, you know, looking into the next five years, let alone the next 50 or 100 sound, years. Sounds right? like college housing, really. Yeah, yeah, Co- very much so. College student housing. Um, How many people can we fit yep. into a structure at the yep. lowest price? At the lowest price. Uh, and so that, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with, with doing things economically. Um, but when it's when that's taken to an extreme, we tend to create uh, architecture that is not very uh, valued. And so therefore, it's not going to last very long. And we end up with a lot of sort of wasted materials, wasted yeah. energy, mm-hmm. um, and places that don't uh, hold up over time to the elements or to human usage, etc. Um, I, I think the other thing, though, about architects, why we need architects, is uh, one of the things that that fascinates me about architecture and architects particularly is that uh, architects tend to be communicators. It's very rare that you have an architect who actually physically goes out and builds projects that she or he designs. Uh, I've known a few, um, and they're limited in terms of the scope of the projects that they can do. Um, You know, eventually they might need to hire a crew or whatever, but it happens, but it's rare. By far, uh, most architects, the vast majority of architects, are in the role of communicating uh, between the client who ostensibly has the money to and, and need to create something uh, and the crew who's going to build it, the contractor and subcontractors uh, and the vendors, the people that actually provide you know, the materials and that sort of thing. So architects are in this kind of central role of communicating among often a very disparate uh, group of people who also often have different uh, goals in mind Mm -hmm. and different values and that sort of thing. And so um, to me as an architectural educator, a huge part of what I'm trying to uh, cultivate in students is the ability to communicate not just verbally, but through drawings, through graphic means where you can be really clear about what it is that this person wants and that person wants, et cetera. And so... uh, Art has a lot to do with that? Art? uh, Potentially. uh, You know, I mean, in terms of... um, Well, that's a bigger question in terms of why architects would draw. We can... Okay. Uh, well, I thought, yeah, well, hold, I'll that, hold that thought but that, for but, but later. But the art yeah. is part of the communication. It can be. Yeah. Okay. It can. Well, yeah. It can, and, and so often something you design. Be. Okay. Like. Okay. So you're thinking right. of this. So like right. what you're telling me, and I kind of sketch it out on a piece of paper. Something like this. Well, yeah, we're getting there, and then you, yes. you kind of more more talking, more yeah. conversing. Yeah. I guess I, the I I'm getting hung up on the notion of the word art as opposed to communication. Drawings used for communication. Mm. Uh, that are um, a, a stepping stone toward greater understanding, to me don't fall as much under the heading of art as something that you would paint or draw and hang on the wall. 
Um, whereas in the design process, we go through a lot of imagery, a lot of stuff to, to elicit responses, to, um, to be clear, to, to get assurance, to get somebody to say, yes, that is what I had in mind. Um, and that's about communication more so than art in the sense of, uh, provoking a, an emotional response or that sort of thing. Right. Well, you know, okay, but it can I, be about that. Too. Okay. Just, just to stick on this a little bit longer. Yeah. Cause the way, what I just thought of is that, okay, it's kind of like, you know, when I'm watching the extras, like, especially like Lord of the Rings extras, yeah. where they're showing you how they came about yeah. what a troll looks like. <laughs> right. So, you know, first of all, it's a drawing. And then uh-huh. somebody or somebody does what they call it a marquette, where they uh-huh. they do it in clay. But uh, yeah. all the time, the the director is picking. No, not like this. I do like this part of this. Yep. And then somebody else does this. I like this part of this. And then somehow somebody puts all of those yeah. desperate parts together, and then suddenly you've got the troll or the orc or yep. uh, whatever. And Sauron's tower. And yeah, it would, a tower, architecture. Yeah, that, that's, yeah. <laughs> right back, see? That's, that, well, that's some quality interviewing skills there, man. That's right. That's conversation happening. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, that's the design process. That's, that's what we refer to as the design process. And it, it happens in all different realms, uh, whether it's animation, whether it's landscape design or whatever, uh, mm-hmm. graphic design, architecture for sure. It's a, it's a call and response. It's a give and take. It's a, it's a process that you go through um, to arrive at something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what I mean about like the, the individual images that are part of that you know, there's nothing stopping someone from uh, taking one of those images and saying, this is now art, I'm putting it in a frame and hanging it on the wall. But the the fundamental intention is to go somewhere, to communicate ideas and uh, intentions and um, to get the relevant people to some form of consensus where, yes, we are committing to this. And and that, back to the original question, why architects, that is, I think, what architecture um, fundamentally is about, at least in terms of architectural education. But then in the profession as well, um, you know, I spent a lot of years in the profession, quite a bit of that time was as a project manager where, um, you know, I was the linchpin. I, I had a group of people that were doing drawings, not for me, but for the project. But, uh, you know, I was coordinating with them. I was coordinating with the client. I was coordinating with contractor and often actually subcontractors uh, because a couple of the projects I worked on were what we would call design-build projects where we were actually hired by the contractor. Um, And (laughs) it gets a little convoluted, but, but, you know, I was running project meetings, keeping phone records, emails, etc. And so I'd get to work and, you know, 7 a.m. the phone would start ringing and it would keep ringing until about 7.30 p.m. And I'd come in on the weekends to kind of, you know, catch my breath basically or get, or get things back to where they need to be Monday morning where I'm ready for that again. Uh, I was the central communication node, you know. that's oh. That was my role as the the project project manager. Mm -hmm. Um, And when the time uh, called for it or a need called for it, I could exert my, you know, 
design chops, basically. Like I could say, okay, this needs to be organized in this way and et cetera. But, uh, but that was always in consultation with the rest of the team. Yeah. Um, and that's not the way that all architects work. A lot of professional firms, especially the kind of high architecture firms, there will be a, a, a particular important person, important architect who maybe just does a couple of kind of sketches that are very suggestive of something and then sort of hands that off to a team to start making it real and then checks back in with that person uh, and theoretically the client regularly enough um, so that everyone is in agreement, but it still is that kind of, it's about communication. It's about ideas being communicated and massaged and edited, refined, etc. Uh, and sometimes that can go horribly wrong. Like um, I remember working for a firm in Eugene where um, Hyundai, where they, it was, uh, they were making, they wanted to build a huge factory outside of Eugene uh, to build semiconductors. And they had uh, hired a, an architect out of San Francisco who had brought the drawings for this place up to like 80% completion. And then got fired because they hadn't, they had somewhere along the line had effectively stopped checking in with the client, with Hyundai. And, and then came to them and said, here's our 80% set of drawings. You know, are you going to, yes, isn't this good? And they said, no, it's not, you're fired. So at our firm, we got that set of drawings and effectively had to kind of interpret everything that had happened up to that point and kind of start over again and work with the client in a way that the previous architect had not uh, to get that project built. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it, it's fraught with uh, miscommunication. Anytime there's communication, there's the possibility of miscommunication, and it can become really problematic uh, at times, which is why it's so important to have architects who really know what they're doing and and are responsive and are open and are listening and and that sort of thing unless you know money is no object and you know i'm gonna whatever but even in those situations um ultimately it, it's got to be a team of people that work together to get something done which is another thing that i really appreciate about architecture which is um uh, i think i heard an interview with jerry garcia years ago where he said you know uh, destroying things, um, doesn't take any kind of real effort. Uh, building things takes real effort, takes real care and a kind of passion and love for humanity, you know, and the people around you to build things, whereas destroying something like, ah, you can just destroy something. And that's another thing that has always appealed to me about architecture, that it's always a kind of, maybe not always, but as I see it, it's a movement in a positive direction. It's about coordination uh, rather than, you know, um, people just off doing their own thing and screw everybody else, you know. Um, but that, that's, you know, one of the uh, uh, aspects of architecture that I appreciate more than anything else because you know if you, if you <laughs> i always think of like uh like I, th I think of architect and i think of some guy sitting at a table 
drafting table or on a mm-hmm. computer, but you know, in my, I'm an old guy. Me so too. I think if, you know, I think it's a guy on a drafting table, mm-hmm. he's going to give you a blueprint. Yeah. Architect. That's it. He does the blueprint, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So like you're that's telling the me. That's the communication. That's the communicative device in that case. But he, but you're telling me it does, it's way more than just the guy sitting there drawing. And then here you go. Here's, here's build this, you know, and yeah. then he's done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that doesn't happen. No, especially because there's something that we call construction administration, which is a, a pretty clearly defined contractual part of, of getting something built, uh, where after everyone has agreed to something and we've created what are known as contract documents, which include drawings and specifications about how something's going to be built, the architect typically still continues to make sure that the contract gets administered correctly. And that's where other problems happen. You get a contractor who says, well, I know the drawings say this, but I'm going to do it this way. They can do that, if I guess, if they don't get caught. <laughs> um, or, you know, changes can be made at that point, but you don't want to make many changes because that starts to drive up the cost and and potentially affects the schedule, yeah, et cetera. I can so, see that, too. Like, at yeah. what point does the yeah. contractor, mm-hmm. uh, the person actually doing the physical build, right. sit there and have to ask an architect for to define something? Like, you know, at what point, how small do you get? I can see that can be a real challenge for the contractor to yeah. to do the design specific to what's on the paper yeah. and, and what's its intention. Well, I've got an interesting example of that, like how oh, small. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When I was working for the same firm I was just talking about in Eugene, we uh, were hired. Um, there, there was a big uh, kind of infrastructure-ish project in Eugene where uh, the Ferry Street Bridge, uh, which is a big bridge that goes across the Willamette River right there and then continues on a viaduct, a raised viaduct kind of through part of town, that whole thing was getting a seismic retrofit. So an engineering firm was hired to reinforce that whole stretch. Uh, The city required that they also, you know, make it um, nice in the sense that uh, they had to have bike lanes and and so there was going to be, you know, railings and that kind of stuff. And so we were hired as effectively urban design consultants to make sure that those elements, those kind of human scale elements on this project were not horrible. Right. And that fell in my lap. That was my kind of one of my design projects that I was working on there. And, uh, and so this included these concrete pillars that the metal railings were attached to. And so I designed a kind of simplified version of what I had seen on the Oregon coast quite a bit, where a lot of those bridges were done in 1920s-ish and had some interesting kind of art deco touches to them, chevrons and interesting stuff. Yeah, dig me smart deco. Yeah, me too. Uh, And and so I kind of did a, a sort of simplified version of that, knowing that it couldn't be super frilly and, you know. Okay, give me an idea of scale. What, the, what size uh, These pillars were about one foot square okay. in plan, and they varied in height, um, maybe uh, five, six feet tall-ish. Okay, okay, okay. Um, along the bridge, anyway. And, uh, and so I had done drawings for that and, you know, sent them to the contractor. They had them. And one day I get a call saying, hey, we did a test pour 
they built a form and built one of these things just in the kind of lot where they had all their construction gear and stuff. Uh, can you come down and, and take a look at it? We've got some options we want you to look at. And it was like, okay, uh, even though it was really clear what I had drawn and what they should have done. And I get down there, and the issue was that I had designed kind of like a, a notch at each of the corners. Hmm. And that was going to be a bit, you know, challenging, let's say, for them to uh, create all of that form work. And they wanted to simplify it. So they did one that was just like a chamfered corner, like a 45 degree angle. Um, another one that just like had the notch near the top, etc. cetera. Uh, and so they did this test pour with like four different corner conditions. Uh, the one that I designed and three others that these guys came up with on the spot to make their lives easier, right? To, to save some money and, and make it simpler. And, uh, and I remember my boss at the time said, you know, just go down there, take a look. And, and if you, you know, if you want, just whichever one you want them to do, take a pencil, sign it, date it on that column and point to the one that you want them to do. And so that's what I did. And it was the one that I designed and they were all like, you know, pissed off because <laughs> they wanted to save some money and some time, even though they had bid on this project, knowing that that was the way that the thing was designed. Um, and I just had to come down and be the arbiter and say, this is the way it was designed. The client signed off on it, the client being the city, of course. Uh, and you guys agreed to this. So why are you throwing this other option at me right now? Um, and they said, okay, all right, you know, that's that. Uh, and I said, what are you going to do with that? pillar. <laughs> they said, oh, we're just going to break it up, you know, and I said, uh, you know, hang on a second, and I called a friend of mine who had a pickup <laughs> and came, and we threw that thing. It was 750 pounds of concrete. Oh, my God. So they had to use a strap on a <laughs> cherry picker, and we got it into the back of his truck and brought it back to my house, <laughs> and as far as I know, we, we sold our house in 1996. No, uh, 2004 is when we sold our house. This happened in about, like, 1996 or so when we bought the house about that time and I had put it as like the finishing uh it was at the end of of the axis of this big garden that I had out in oh, the back cool. and and I, as far as I know it's still sitting there with with <laughs> you know put at an angle with the correct corner facing ah! that toward the house <laughs> there you go yeah yeah, yeah. I, I wish I could have brought that thing up here to to Moscow but <laughs> yeah I didn't need to didn't need to bring that much concrete. Wow. Okay, yeah. you had the story for that. <laughs> wow. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so today's uh, choice that so we're we're hanging out. Yeah. Uh, Matt and I both like beer. He's a home brewer. <laughs> you know, we, we we actually did a podcast about that for work that mm. never that that can nev nothing never ever came to that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, here we are. We're drinking a nice uh, drum roll by O'Doul's. Odell. Hey, Odell. Not Odell's. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Different. I really like their beer. And actually, we, there's a there's an Odell, Oregon. And, we'll, and Elise was asking, because we just came through there. Yeah. Uh, and she's like, is this where Odell, Brew uh, <laughs> Odell. Odell Brewery is? Yeah. like, no. no I think it's, it's in Fort Collins. Yeah, Fort Collins. Yeah, yeah. Lucky Colorado. bastards. Yeah, yeah. There's a bunch of New Belgiums in Fort Collins as mm -hmm. well, I think. And mm -hmm. at least one other. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's good beer. Thank you for this. So... Um, so geez, what you're talking about, mm -hmm. like when you're architect, yeah. instead of just some guy that sits there and draws and is a communicator, you also have to know a lot about materials. Yes. Yeah. That's going to be so true. difficult because there's, there's there so are many materials. Ones and they're always changing. Yeah. 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 I mean, I yeah. just think of like, um, boy, like the, the, some people call it just a brick and steel 
back yeah. in the you know mm-hmm. uh, the early 1900s, I would assume, where it's just basically yeah. make a brick, steel with yeah. bricks, you know, yeah. brick building, windows in it. Yeah. And now, I mean, the sky is the limit where you've got, isn't it, Frank Gehry is his name, where yeah. he mm-hmm. kind of like, um, like drapes over things. Sure. Mm-hmm. And it's very flowing and just like... Yeah. The, yeah. the sky is the limit right now for what you can yeah. use or not use. Yeah, more or less. How do you decide what to use? Hmm. Uh, wow, that's a, a very difficult question. Yeah, sorry, man. Yeah, I, no. Because, you know, I was looking at the, yeah. at, 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 at WSU, the yeah. uh, the international building. Mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure what it's called, but they have got... That tortoise-looking thing? Yeah, yeah. with these, with yeah. these formed large yeah. pieces yeah. of wood. Yeah, glue lamps. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. So you have to know, in order to design that, that wood can do that. Yes, yes. I, I mean, it, it is. Uh, it, it's it's a process again that um, you know architects and uh, materials producers, uh, vendors, etc., kind of have been enacting for a very long time, and and at at some really critical points in architectural history, uh, it has been materiality that has led to the next set of innovations um like you brought up early 1900s you know what 1870 chicago burns down uh and it wasn't the only place that that had a catastrophic fire but chicago is really pivotal um because of when that happened uh internal uh steel frame construction was kind of a, a new thing whereas previous to that by and large uh Load-bearing masonry construction was the way that you would build buildings, so big, thick, heavy brick walls or stone. Uh, whereas with with frame construction uh, in steel, and if you then fireproof that steel, uh, you have a very lightweight. Well, lightweight's not really the best it's description. Lighter than a big chunk of yeah, rock. Yeah, uh, more open certainly, and. Mm. Uh, um, and yet rigid and um, potentially fireproof or, or extremely fire resistant. Um, and, and what's interesting is that it took a little while for design to kind of catch up to that as a, a new set of possibilities. So even though we were building with a very kind of open uh, internal frame structure, there was still the external brick uh and the windows were it was almost like they were punched into you know uh, a load-bearing wall um but it didn't take too long before that those window openings started getting bigger and bigger and bigger and then they kind of went away entirely and we have what we call a curtain wall now so you've got an interior steel structure and then the glass the the exterior wall is no longer structural so it can be glass, right? Ah, and so that That's let, how they get glass buildings. That is where that well, started. Okay. For sure. Okay. Uh, so it's all yeah. internal. The, 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 the structure is internal. internal. That's yeah. why. Okay, okay. And right about the same time, Otis Elevators and invents the elevator and we can start going taller. And so like tall glass skyscrapers become a thing. Um, I mean, I'm oversimplifying, of course, but not too much. That's yeah. basically what happened. Uh, and and a lot of that happened in Chicago. Uh, and so when I bring students there, I just brought a group of students there in March. Um, there's a lot of buildings that you can point to there and say, when that building was built, it was the tallest building in the world. You walk 
couple blocks when that building was built, it was the tallest building in the world. Because after the fire, you know, it was kind of tabula rasa. And then with internal steel frame construction, with the invention of the elevator, buildings start going up uh, higher and higher. And, and they're still, I mean, they're being built there today. Some really incredible, very tall steel frame glass encased structures going up there. So uh, that was something that had very much had to do with development of materials. Uh, and that absolutely continues. Um, but it is a little bit dizzying. I, I remember working for, uh, particularly the firms I worked for in D.C., um, it was like at least two or three times a week where you had uh, representatives from materials and you know textiles companies furniture companies lighting companies um all kinds of different companies they'd send a representative and they would bring lunch and tell you about their new materials and so it was like free lunch you know three times a week because it was just this never-ending uh you know there was just new stuff all the time and so being an architect absolutely you gotta stay as current as possible having said that you know most architecture firms have a, a tendency toward a kind of specialization where we do residential work or we do, you know, uh, healthcare work or whatever. I and see. so they, they're specialization. Yeah. Within like within their realm of the design work wow. that they I mean, tend sorry, to my, do. My brain yeah. just exploded there. Yeah. Cause you think of like, okay, <laughs> well with specialization, it would make total sense that you yeah. specialize in hospitals yes. or yes. specialize in yeah. airplane hangers. Cause they're yep. way different. Same, yeah. same un big heading of architects yeah. or architecture, right. but they, but very, very different functions. Yes. And how you design that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Mind, and the, mind blown. <laughs> you know, the, the firms that I've worked for that were most satisfying to me were ones that didn't specialize too much, where they were kind of open to a variety of different projects coming in the door. Um, however, every firm I worked for had to do a certain amount of that in order to develop expertise, which is part of what oh, we're talking yeah. about in mm -hmm. terms of materiality and that kind of thing. Um, but also develop a, a name for themselves of having done work that people wanted to have done. Um, uh, another example that was a firm in Eugene where um, uh, the student rec and fitness center at the University of Oregon uh, was due for a kind of remodel and expansion. And so uh, a company out of LA got the job um, from the University of Oregon, but as is often the case, they needed a local architect to do the work kind of locally there in Eugene. So we teamed up together, got so the kind got of a the subcontractor project. or a subarchitect, uh, just an architectural team, really. Uh, and and you know, architecture firms do this all the time with regard to um, consultants. You know, you yeah. might hire a landscape architect or a uh, engineering uh, firm to to round out your team, to, to fill in the gaps for what you Especially somebody local would, would be helpful. Uh, yes, on large yeah. projects like that with a big firm that they had done something like uh, six or seven um, of the student rec and fitness centers in the what was at the time the Pac-10 schools. Mm -hmm. so, so they had a name for having done those projects, and so they teamed up with us, and, um, and we did the 
the project with them together. That that's another example of kind of um, developing a kind of expertise in a particular area. Um, similarly, like yeah, with hospitals, healthcare, uh, university work, civic work, those kind of things. Firms will often develop a kind of focus. Uh, doesn't mean that they can't or won't do other kinds of work, but there will often be a, a sort of focus because otherwise, I mean, you just you kind of can't do everything. You can't be an expert in every direction, particularly when it comes to things like materials or just sort of state of the art. How does this building need to be organized? What's the best practice right now for, you know, uh, well, neonatal intensive care unit. I, I did yeah, one of those wow. in Eugene, and that was the most complex project I ever uh, had to design because it was just, you know, the space itself wasn't crazy complicated, but all of the different systems, the different gases, the different uh, electrical stuff, it was oh, so super complex. Piping all of that. that. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, uh, you know, in coordination with electrical, plumbing engineers, et cetera. But at the same time, like what I was trying to do was make it a place where it was a, a nice place to be. Uh, as it turned out, um, we got to enjoy it, if that's the right word. <laughs> when uh, our first son was born, he, oh. spent, he spent a few days in the NICU that I had designed. And, and uh, that was uh, kind of a full circle Wow, isn't opportunity it as a designer, yeah. Wow. And did you do a good job with it? Good enough. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it worked for you. Right, yeah. I mean, all's well that ends well. <laughs> Literally there. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I never yeah. really, that's got to be a real joy to be an it architect was. and then actually go and, yeah. and use that facility yeah. for something that you, you can't avoid. It's Absolutely. not like, you know, yeah, yeah. Oh, let's go to the uh, opera yeah. that I no. designed. No, that's just, you yeah. only use that once, hopefully. <laughs> well, yeah, knock on wood. Well, I'm not having kids anymore, so yes, I. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, uh, that was a special kind of moment um, in terms of design coming back, you know, and, and being part of my life in, a, in an interesting way. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> That's just so cool. You know, um, as I was doing a bit of research on architecture and uh, the first thing that I went to was a space needle uh -huh. because that is just, so it, it is, it is Seattle is no specific Northwest, mm -hmm. um, icon. Yeah. And, and it's so weird. It's, it's what a weird. weird building! That <laughs> it's is. really weird. It's yeah. really weird, but yeah. I mean, I grew up with it. I love yeah. that building. I mean, yeah. I, I can't imagine Seattle without it. No, uh, and they keep you know keep retrofitting it and improving yeah. it, and actually it's just went through a big one. Here. Oh, did they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe yeah. Uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah. We were just finished not too long ago, yeah. Yeah. redoing uh, huh. safety and windows sure. and sure all that. Right, but right. Uh, so. It's so Jetsons. It's, yeah. it's, uh, it's what yeah. I love about it. Yeah. yeah. It's like the spaceship landed yeah. on some yeah. gigantic yeah. Uh, steel columns, yeah. basically. Yeah. It's just crazy. Yeah. So how do you get to yeah. there? How does it, like an architect yeah. go yeah. from, like, just to, I imagine that when you're an architect student, mm -hmm. okay, we're going to design a house. You design, does it start small and then build and then suddenly I can make a spaceship land on <laughs> columns, you know? Uh, yes and no. I, I think, you know, the, uh, it, it would be really tempting to start with a house. But there's something funny about that in that 
everybody thinks they know what a house should be. And, and yet we're still designing houses, uh, that are different and new and better and more effective and yeah, that kind of thing. So just go down my block here. Not yeah. one of the houses is identical. No, no, there, it's, wow, there's, yeah, there's true. an infinite yeah. variety. And, and so as an educator, it can often be problematic if you try to put a problem like that in front of a student, because they're going to come to that problem with just a boatload of preconceived notions about what it should be a gable with it, you know, the, the little house that they drew when they were in third grade. Yeah. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, not that there's anything that terribly wrong with that, but, uh, if you're trying to cultivate a designer, you want to shake loose those preconceived notions, uh, as much as possible to get back to what I was talking about before, a kind of openness and, mm-hmm. uh, creativity, uh, taken or, or brought to any particular task or design problem. And, uh, and so we have a tendency to, to start, I think it's generally a healthy tendency to start with fairly abstract kinds of, uh, design problems Mm -hmm. and, uh, and trying to focus more on the, the process of design. So give me a, what's a design problem? Uh, well, um, you know, it, it might start really as a graphic problem. You might begin with, uh, like, you know, there's, I'm looking at a, a little print just over your shoulder there yeah. on the wall that that has some lines. It's it's blue and there's some yellow and some aqua and, and there's some lines are squiggly and some, there's an organization to it. And you might just begin there. Like, let's talk about Abstract. how... The, yeah, well, it, composition, you know, like oh. like how things are composed, uh, what, you know, putting the lines off to one side as opposed to right down the middle, what does that mean? What effect does that have on next steps that you might take? Um, and then kind of bringing that into a, a realm of spatial composition where, where spaces relate to one another in particular ways and... And so I don't, when I say abstract, I don't mean fully abstract. I mean abstract with meaning, like that, that graphics and spaces can uh, be representative of uh, ideas and uh, hmm. organizational patterns or relationships between one place and another. Um, and so kind of trying to get people to, to at least think in those terms um, and being again, open to, uh, ways of thinking and ways of creating that aren't just jumping to the gabled roof with the little, you know, chimney with the squiggly lines coming out of it. Yeah. So that's more where we would begin rather than kind of starting there. But then not too long after that, yeah, okay, let's design a coffee shop or let's, you know, but bringing along with us those attitudes and analytical uh, propensities that we might have toward how we're going to create effective space or meaningful space or hopefully both, right? Um, so it's it's about kind of working our way into things that then complexity starts to grow, uh, but not starting with something that either everyone thinks they know everything about like a house (laughs) 
or uh, something that's so complex, um, or from the point of engineering, so kind of difficult to conceive of as the space needle, to go back to that. Mm. Um, And all along, we're hopefully educating people well enough in terms of what has come before. So like the space needle as weird as it is, is on a continuum of a bunch of things like that that have been done around the world for, you know, that that predated that. Um, And surely the engineers and designers of that were aware of other significant towers of a similar scale, using similar materials, etc. So we're always kind of building on what has come before, hopefully, uh, and not, you know, making... Um, mistakes or, uh, or yeah, not making mistakes of things that we've done before. Yeah. Or, or grand mistakes. Right, right, right. Catastrophic. Brasilia, (laughs) for example. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Although those kind of places are, I love it. They're kind of interesting. I love it. So I know again, a little bit, you know, the danger Mm. of, of knowing something is, you know, a little bit of something. Sure. sure. But Brasilia, um, Mm -hmm. uh, how do, how would you describe it? It's basically, it was a Mm pre-planned city meant to be the, um, the capital of Brazil. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, and they went full out, mm-hmm. how do we design this mm-hmm. without really thinking about how it's all going to work <laughs> with <Yeah. laughs> They tried to make it, make force people to work, to live within this area. Right. And it didn't quite work as far right. as still not quite working yeah. uh, as far as uh, a I haven't been society. there. I, I've been to Sao Paulo and that was, uh, the craziest place I think I've ever been. Um, it's like what 28 million people oh i don't know something like that i mean it is immense okay um and it just goes and goes i remember flying in and it felt like forever that we were you know on our approach flying over the city i'm accustomed to flying in and out of chicago new york places like that that are big right but but this this was yeah generally yeah more dense kind of concentrated this just went on forever just over terrain that was kind of hilly and it was mind-boggling um but yeah the kind of planned community thing of brasilia there there's some places like that in italy that i'm more familiar with aur is one this kind of uh mussolini era kind of planned city just south of of the center of rome um that uh, you know those places have a kind of charm to me in the sense that there there was a utopian attitude toward them. You know, yeah. we're going to do it on this big scale, but we're going to do it better. And and at the same time, it, it there's a kind of inherent human folly that that those places speak to that um, that I also find interesting and compelling. <laughs> like you know, you can be utopian, but you're still human or we're still human. It's still society. We're still going to get stuff wrong, especially when we really try to do the big grand kind of, uh, design. But you know, that's, uh, they did that in Chicago as well. Uh, Daniel Burnham and his plan for Chicago, Washington DC is effectively a, a utopian city, um, that comes very much from Paris. Um, at least in terms of its planning, architecturally it comes very much from Rome uh, and Greece to some degree. But Isn't uh, it, it's uh, called that, wasn't it? Neo, neo, neoclassical, neoclassical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why is it neoclassical? Well, because uh, by and large, movements of architecture. When we talk about like the Renaissance or Baroque or Gothic, 
um, were associated with periods of time as much as anything. Mm-hmm. And stylistically, yes, we can identify the parts and pieces of classicism, for example. But it is no longer the classical era. So in order to refer to something as being classical, you know, to be really accurate, you you got to only be talking about a period of time. Uh, Gothic is very much that way. The, you know, there was a chunk of time where Gothic was the rage, basically. Okay, it, uh, but if you were to build a building that now has Gothic elements, you would properly have to call that either Neo-Gothic or Gothic Revival or something like that. You'd have to append an adjective. So it's clear that you're not talking about an authentic work that was done at a particular period of time. Okay, so if it's neoclassical, what makes something classical? Uh, Typically, there's a number of things. First and foremost probably has to do with the orders, we call them. So there's um, typically uh, four orders that we would acknowledge, Tuscan, Doric, Ionic, and Corinthian. Um, And that has to do with the detailing of uh, the, the columns, typically there are columns mm-hmm. and, and they have particular dimensions and particular kinds of capitals and bases, uh, and an entablature that rests on top of those columns that is, has a particular set of, uh, elements that are of a particular dimension. Um, there are variations on that, but by and large the, or, you know, way back when in the classical era, there weren't significant variations. On okay, those, so right? give me a, so, what's classical area? What what uh, what years are we talking there? Well, I you know, I think we'd have to go back to Greece, right? And oh. talk about uh Doric temples in oh, Greece. Oh, I see. And, okay, so that's classical. Yeah. So they're taking elements of that uh-huh. and then saying, okay, so it's neoclassical. So if we were today yeah, right. do something like yep. that, even though that was in the you know the, what uh, the 1700s that was created or whatever. Well, with Greece we, we're talking, you know, well, I mean, 500, like neoclassical. So when I think I'm thinking right, of Washington right. D.C. I'm sure. thinking of yep. the Capitol That's building, right? Properly neoclassical, right? Yep. And so, if we, if even if we did one of those today, something that looked similar to that, it would mm-hmm. still be called neoclassical. Yeah. So neoclassical yep. isn't necessarily a time frame. Classical is anything that references that is neo. Yeah, you know, I I I might be well, getting they're, a they're, little they're, bit they're, out, they're, of, out of okay. my depth in terms of uh, the particulars of okay because I I would imagine that there are you know, especially in terms of, um, well, architecture from the early part of this century, just before modernism really took hold. So I was talking about, you know, steel frame and glass and that kind of thing. That really started to kind of kick into gear in the teens and 20s and thereafter. Um, But before then... um, neoclassicism was kind of getting a bit out of hand and there were a lot of kind of sub genres to what that really was. And, and people were sort of playing fast and loose with the rules and still kind of, uh, calling it, well, I don't know if they were calling it neoclassical, but it's still sort of under that umbrella, let's say, but I, you know, really the, the terminology, there's so many terms now <laughs> in terms of, you know, revival styles and neo styles, etc. cetera. Uh, I don't think that those have quite so much to do with periods of time, but there might be exceptions to that. Okay. So, so yeah. are there eras? 
that, that are definable? Yes. <laughs> I mean, okay. So this it, is it, so it's like history. There's like you can't really yeah. say like okay, you can call it like pre-Civil War. Okay, there was an exact moment. Yep. But when it comes to architecture, nobody said okay, we're after. It's it could be after Civil War, but I, something like I that. I guess from at least from my some historical that all started to kind of go flying out the window to some degree with the advent of modernism ah. and the um, the continuation of historic styles. When I say continuation, I mean like a lot of people still to this day, like my alma mater, the University of Notre Dame now, uh, like they're still tied to classical architecture. Um, in fact, if I, if I were to go to school at Notre Dame today, that's the training that I would get, would be classicism by and large. Um, I'm thankful that that didn't happen until after I graduated, that, that <laughs> lurch to that kind of uh, focus on that. But these students are coming out of school and they're being snapped up and being hired by firms, particularly in places like D.C., that still have clients that want them to do neoclassical architecture. Uh, or they might not call it neoclassical. They might really think that they're doing things absolutely by the book, and so therefore it can be called classical, but I, I disagree with that. I, I think of that, uh, it has to have some other adjective. It's a revival of something. It's not actually... I mean, that's why they called the Renaissance the Renaissance. They didn't call it classicism, even though it, it depended enormously on classical precedents from ancient Rome and Greece. Uh, it was the Renaissance, which literally means the uh, rebirth, uh, to be born again. Um, uh, what's the word in Italian? Rinascimento, uh, to be born again. Uh, so even they acknowledged, like, this isn't classicism. This is something new, even though we have the columns, we have the symmetry, we have this and that and the other thing. Um, whereas there are folks today that want to believe that hey, it's all classicism. There's nothing neo about it uh, and would argue that that it is timeless, right? Wow. Uh, the, you know, I, this, I disagree with that, but, you know, this, other this, this people whole, can have different opinions. This whole this uh, conversation about architecture, yeah. I, I'm learning so much <laughs> because I really, I mean, I, what I knew was, you know, a little bit, and uh, I had no idea that there were so, uh, so, um, so many things that are not necessarily uh, book defined. Yeah, right. That uh, there. That's are... why I prefaced everything by saying my opinions are just my opinions. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. there's other people who are really more knowledgeable than me, or many probably not as knowledgeable as me, but who have their own opinions, who who come to this with their own set of ideas about what's true, what's not true, you know, what words we should use for particular things, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. What's your favorite thing to design? Huh. Wow, that's an interesting question. I don't, I don't think I have a favorite thing to design. I think what I enjoy designing is whatever needs to be designed next. <laughs> So I mean, it's it's a little bit like uh, you know, what's your favorite song? Well, I have a thousand, oh God, right? Yeah, yeah and impossible. and a lot of it has to do with my particular mood or the way I'm feeling that day or whatever. Um, design to me is something that like if there's a need for it, that 
usually gets me excited. Usually I, I want to figure it out and, um, and solve something, not necessarily a problem, but, uh, a way of, of manipulating my environment or some part of the environment mm -hmm. so that things are more effective, so that, so that it works better, so that it's, uh, I don't know, whatever it is. Um, I, I'm, <laughs> when Patty hears this, she'll laugh because I, I am in the midst of trying, well, it's been too long. I, I haven't had enough time, but, uh, we have a, a, a cobbled together beverage bar at the kitchen counter. That's, uh, some tables and thing, you know, some equipment and a kind of box thing that I built for the top of it on the fly. And, uh, and I've been basically promising her that I'm going to design and build a, a new kind of cohesive beverage bar. And, uh, and I just, uh, I, I need to finally like sit down and do it and design it and build it. What's problematic about it is that I've thrown together a lot of equipment. We have a, you know, kegerator that keeps the kegs cold and, uh, a carbonator that injects carbon uh, carbon dioxide into water, and then that goes into the kegerator. Yeah, and, and an espresso machine, and and there's electrical stuff that I had installed on the floor, and a floor drain. There's a bunch of stuff going on there, um, and so I I need to kind of take all of that stuff. It's not just like, hey, I get to design a bar. Yeah, I'm, and when you say bar, I think of like you know. Yeah, wood countertop stools, but right. that's not it. It's basically a, a function like you would have at a restaurant, which is what the kitchen counter is. So. Yes, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. However, you know, part of what we've talked about is wouldn't it be nice to be able to stand with an elbow on the bar and have you know your drink on not uh, not a bar, but like uh, maybe a six or eight inch deep kind of gathering top. spot. Well, like a cap on top of the kind of wall that goes around the equipment and that kind of thing. So oh, I see. there's, and, and it's, it's a lot easier, I think, to go into a situation like this where you're not also the client, your wife isn't the client. Uh, you know, when you're sort of, you can be objective about it. You can kind of just go in and say, tell me what you need. I can slam it together or whatever. Or, you know, I don't mean slam it together to put a lot of care and thought into it. <laughs> AKA slam it together. Right. <laughs> uh, when it's personal, it's a little bit more difficult. Yeah, right. And when you know all of the kind of complexities to it, it it's more difficult. But it's also more interesting and challenging. And, and that, to me, is whatever the next sort of thing in front of me to figure out, that's what I like designing most it's not to say that i haven't had to do design projects that were like pulling teeth and that i didn't enjoy working on but i'm always kind of trying to look to the next thing and uh and you know do as well as i can possibly do to complete my previous task as thoroughly and effectively as possible before moving on to the next thing uh but i don't mind juggling things now and then and you know so I don't I don't have a particular thing that I enjoy doing most. Hmm. So just yeah. um, bring it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the other advantage about working with students is you know oh. you can put a uh, you can put a project in front of them. Hey, mm -hmm. design this, design an airport or whatever it is. And if you got fifteen, sixteen students in your studio, you, they're going to come back with 
at least 15 or 16 ideas. And then you have to kind of help them through, you know, this works, that doesn't work. Go look at this, look at that, um, try this, you know, et cetera. You're, you're really juggling a lot of different responses to a similar set of parameters or, you know. So different from math. Yeah, no, there are a bazillion right and a, a fair number of wrong answers in, in design as well. But yeah. there really is an infinite number of potentially good answers to, to any given design problem. And that's the other thing that I find compelling about it, that it's not so absolute, that it's not like there is this one right answer. So, Is there something that students get wrong or right? Let that, I guess hmm. my question is, is there something kind of inherent that uh, people who are interested in doing architecture, they tend to get this thing right or tend to get this thing wrong more often when it comes to... Um, You know, the only thing I think that you can get wrong from the standpoint of design, and this is something I'm forever trying to communicate to my students, is uh, to not consider, to really consider a variety of options kind of at every turn. Um getting locked into this is my idea and getting developing a, a sense of preciousness about that uh, leads one to exclude other options that might be more favorable. And so uh, that's the one thing that, that people can absolutely get wrong um, and that some folks never find their way out of this uh, you know some folks just like it's about their idea and that's what it's about and uh, they can't be persuaded otherwise and um, and you know that's the thing that that I think is, is detrimental to good design is mm. is a kind of closed-mindedness or an attachment to the first idea that you get rather than kind of being like, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's, let's try some other ones just for, you know, I was going to say shits and giggles. You, but, can, you, know. you can cuss. It's okay. okay. <laughs> I mean, this is the, you know, this family going, show. This is the, hell no. <laughs> this is on the fucking internet. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. You so, can do whatever you want. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, so that's the thing that people get wrong. It's not um, a particular, you know, uh, specific thing with regard to design. It's an attitude toward design oh. that I that I often see people not getting right. But to balance that, I would say that uh, when when students that I've worked with get through that and discover at least at some point for themselves the value of an openness and a different attitude toward that, that's when you see them take off. That's when you see them, like, they start to become capable, competent, uh, able to take information and put it together in a way that, yes, we're improving a situation or we're coming up with a viable option. Um, so tough. So, yeah. I mean, it is, I, it is, because I mean, it's very personal, too. Yeah, that's just tough yeah. in general, just in yeah, life. Yeah, fair, right. I right. mean, you know, yeah. you have an idea, you kind of, you know, yeah. get married to the idea, as they say. Yeah, absolutely. I do all the time. You know, that's a human, I think, emotion. It, it comes from a kind of, well, fear, maybe, of kind of also wanting to just get something done and move on. You know, a lot of people have that kind of 
inside them, you know, um, and don't want to consider other possibilities. Um, but, and, and I don't mean to kind of spin your wheels and constantly, you know, oh, there, I could do it this way, I could do it that way forever, but developing a kind of sensibility for being open to options and then knowing when to start to shut that down and say, mm-hmm. this is the best available option right now. And, and that's not the end of it. I can improve on that. I can, you know, that again, to go back to the design process that it's a, we often refer to it as a cyclical process where you're revisiting decisions you've already made based on new information and, uh, and discovering new ways of doing things. That's why, you know, people who spend their lives designing houses, like one building type, um, are still figuring it out, you know, because you're constantly trying and succeeding in some ways and failing in other ways. And so the next time you're trying to succeed in other ways, but maybe you fail in other ways. So uh, that's, you know, it's a human condition for sure. Uh, but as a profession, basically, you know, wow. Huh? Yeah. I, I, so is there, so what do they get right? That's off the bat that they, they tend to get right quite often, or is there, that's uh, maybe the the biggest (laughs) challenge is trying to get them out of there. That's the biggest challenge, uh, you know, is getting people to kind of be open to possibilities. Um, in terms of the thing that they get right, I, you know, anybody who comes to it with an honest kind of enthusiasm, I would argue is getting it right. Like, uh, that, that often goes hand in hand with an openness about it. If there's a kind of open, honest enthusiasm for Mm -hmm. something as opposed to a defensive posture of, uh, this is me, this is my work. You, You know, don't criticize it. I mean, it's funny. We haven't really talked about criticism, uh, but there's plenty too. Well, but it, it is inherent in architecture. Yeah, because you know, architectural. You just look at buildings. Yeah. You go, "Wow, that thing's ugly." Right. Or like, I mean, you want to talk about one mm-hmm. that where that uh, like uh, the one I think of right away is mm-hmm. the Seattle Library that yeah. was recently redesigned. There's a people in Seattle like they love it mm-hmm. or they hate it. Yeah. And I like it. I think it's a very interesting and very cool mm-hmm. design. Um, so, yeah. but so well, it's a very thoughtful design, and it's mm-hmm. uh, well, criticism. Uh, and I, when I hear the word criticism, when I use the word criticism, I do not mean uh, n- pejorative. I don't mean negative. Like no. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe a better way of expressing it is being critical, uh, making judgments about things based on information, based on past understandings based on whatever it is. Okay. Well, I work in radio and the thing that we always say is mm-hmm. everybody needs an editor. Yes. Yeah. And an editor is not just there to say, no, that sucks. Right. Yeah. No, Make it better. They're right. there to, to be critical. Be critical. Exactly. And, and make distinctions about what makes this good, what makes that less good. Uh, and that's in, in any kind of creative pursuit, I think, and even many non-creative pursuits, uh, Criticism is part of it. You, you have to be open to it uh, and understand that it is uh, that being critical is different than being negative. You know, uh, sometimes it is being negative. Sometimes you have to call a spade a spade. But uh, but being critical, if you're being critical, it's not just I don't like it. You have to follow that with. 
well, I, I wouldn't even say like. I, I tend not to use that word when I'm talking about architecture. It's not about like. It's about uh, this is effective or good for the following reasons. This is less effective or less good for the following reasons. That it's not about my personal feelings. It's about what I understand and what my experience tells me and that kind of thing. And in a creative pursuit, especially in school, like architecture, um, there is a kind of uh, people are wrapped into their work. They, they see their work as them. It's an extension of them. And so any time you say this isn't as good as it could be, it can be perceived as you're saying that about me, mm. <laughs> not about the work. So a big, I guess the one thing that people can get right is they think of their work as their work, not themselves. Uh, that's a really good posture to take. And, and so separating those things is a, is often a big part of, of really working well with students. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Huh. Damn critics. <laughs> one born every minute right? <laughs> yeah. uh, everyone's uh, a critic yeah. <laughs> and it holds true yeah. so there is someone who died recently is it I.M. Pei oh sure yeah, yeah who, just uh, last week just last week editor's note here I.M. Pei died on May 16th 2019 mm -hmm. and uh, so just <clears throat> from the news and stuff he was in the news but why mm -hmm. was he so important in the architecture world hmm uh, he was a very creative designer and had a long, long career and worked on some extremely high profile projects. Um, one of, well, the one that I was most familiar with early-ish on when I moved to Washington, D.C. is, uh, the East Wing of the National Gallery Yeah, in Washington, D.C., which is a, just a really fascinating project even to this day um, that worked in some fascinating ways with the existing urban plan of D.C. Um, that didn't at all try to mimic the existing uh, neoclassical uh, wing of the National Gallery. Um, used material in a really compelling way, I thought, kind of set the stage to some degree for the things that are still happening more rarely now on the National Mall uh, because there is less and less opportunity to create new buildings there. Um, uh, another one was the the pyramidal kind of entry hall to the Louvre in Paris, yeah, which is... Yeah. And But if you were to put those two projects side by side, you know, yeah, they're both art museums, uh, I guess, but uh, very different kinds of museums to some degree, but vastly different approaches to design. So it wasn't like he had, at least in my understanding of his work, a, a sort of signature style, whereas you've mentioned Frank Gehry a couple of times. Yeah. And other than some of his very early work, most of the work that Gary has done in the past couple of decades, you see the building and you know immediately that's a Frank Gary building. It's mm -hmm. a signature kind of style. So there's a, a like bit of a like bit drapes. of a one size fit, fits all approach. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know um, that you're hiring me, Frank Gary, to do this design. So you must want what all these other buildings look like. So here, now you have it. 
Whereas I think I am pay came from a bit of a different approach where there was a greater sense of sensitivity to the particular project in a particular place for a particular client, more responsive, more, you know, flexible. Uh, and, uh, you know, I just did a lot of extraordinary work uh, all over the world, really. And I think a lot of it just has to do with the length of his career and the, the profile, the high profile nature of a lot of the work. So, um, but he was what, 103? Oh, I don't know. He, he was, lived a long life. Yeah. yeah. Huh. And then if you think back to like uh, somebody, like I have a couple books mm-hmm. on Frank Lloyd Wright. Oh, yeah. Where uh, to me, it's just the way that he uses the natural environment yeah. and, and spaces and also the mm-hmm. uh, uh, the, the design elements mm-hmm. everywhere yeah, yeah. Uh, just blows me away. Yeah, his work is is likewise extraordinary. I, when I had that group of students in Chicago that I mentioned a little while ago, uh, we went out to Oak Park. We get on a train and go out there, and there's, uh, I forget exactly the number, something like 28 of Frank Lloyd Wright uh, residences out there, plus the Unity Temple, Uni- Universalist uh, or Unitarian Church there that he designed, which is really one of the most incredible spaces I've ever been in. Uh, and it always surprises me when I walk in there, just like I, I sort of see things that I hadn't seen before or understand it in ways that I hadn't understood before. Um, just, yeah, the, that guy was incredible. <laughs> he did just incredible work. And again, even though he created what, you know, we would call a kind of signature style or, or an entire kind of movement, prairie, prairie style architecture. He didn't stop there. You know, he, he kept moving, kept uh, approaching things differently depending on where he was designing uh, the work that he did in Japan and California and um, the desert Southwest, etc. I mean, it really um, showed a kind of flexibility and as you point out, a sensitivity to landscape and environment that, uh, that was amazing. Um, I, I have a real affinity for, uh, I, I, I would group a lot of what he did under the heading of arts and crafts. Um, arts and crafts style. Yeah. Or kind of movement. It's not so much stylistic because it's more an attitude toward, um, a holistic attitude toward creating buildings where you don't stop once the building is up. You kind of keep going and do the furniture, the textiles, the, you know, yeah. the light fixtures and everything. And it's all of a piece. Uh, you know, some of the um, uh, national forest or national park architecture can mm-hmm. fall under that heading. I don't know if you've ever been to Timberline Lodge. Yeah, actually, I was there just last weekend. Were you? Okay. Yeah. That is properly arts and crafts, you know, where kind of everything is not so much by one person, uh, but by a team of people where it's all thought of together. With artists and craftspeople, yes. like a craftsman. Like, yeah, like exactly. There's a, we, we saw a little yeah. display of mm-hmm. where um, they're showing the man who created the, the gate mm-hmm. way that goes into the dining area. Right. Um, right. took this great picture of a, mm-hmm. of one of the door handles. It's like, yeah, a, the, like right. a dragon. Door handles. Exactly. You know, it's like the, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And that's when you go to a, a fair number of Frank Lloyd Wright's, uh, buildings, the ones that are 
have been maintained or, you know, that are now kind of museum like, like his, his home and studio there in Oak yeah. Park. Um, you see that this guy was never done designing things and it was, uh, everything was related and there was a, just a, a kind of baseline inventiveness uh, behind every little task, whether it was designing a light fixture or an entire house. Um, and that is super compelling to me. That, that's just really exciting to be in those places. It, it's super exciting to bring students to those places who have never been there before and kind of be like, this, this is what you could be doing. Right? Yeah, you, know? you could do falling water. You <laughs> could do that. Well, yeah, why not? Why not? In yeah. your own way. I mean, I, if, if you give it the time that it needs... If you really apply yourself to it, you don't sort of walk away from uh, an incomplete task. I mean, I'm just an architect. I don't do furniture. Well, why not? It's to go all the way back to my definition of architecture. It's all under that same heading. And if you're doing design work, it doesn't matter the scale. It's uh, you're trying to make it all work together, you know. Yeah. So is there anything that you're looking at, like today's structures? So you that uh, that you really enjoy that's hmm. like modern architecture that you really like? Uh, yeah, on kind of a case-by-case basis. I mean, the, the things that, um, uh, the places that I've been, you know, new buildings, new uh, important buildings, ones that get published for good reason, uh, I tend to go into those with a pretty critical eye. And uh, looking for what I think is really interesting and works well, and at the same time, what maybe could have been done better. Um, there's examples of that in Rome, like, you know, buildings that have been done in the last 10, 20 years by very well known architects. Uh, you know, just, okay, just mm-hmm. to stop that, yeah. you know, because you go to Rome, you visit there all the time. But yeah. in my mind, mm-hmm. and I think really in most people's minds, that Rome is pretty stagnant. Rome is a yeah. past. No. But, but yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. yeah, obviously I mean, I, I know people understand it that way. You go there for, yep. to look at the, to look at history. Yes. Or to see, you know, go, hey, what's up, a poppy? Yeah. You know, go check out yeah. the Pope. <laughs> sure. But, uh, but it is a growing and there's new design there that you're yes. saying. Yeah, it's both and. I mean, you do go there for history, but I go there as well for new work that... Uh, it's a vibrant place. It's a, you know, it's a world capital. It, it's, uh, and Italians have a long and rich history of design, um, and contemporary design, um, on top of everything, you know, I mean, Milan is a capital of fashion, right? Venice, the Biennale every couple of years is just shocking the world with interesting work and, um, and Rome as well. Uh, so there's, there's always new work there. Um, well, I shouldn't say always, but um, there has been a considerable amount of new, really exciting, interesting work, but also work that uh, you can be critical of. And there again, that's when I'm there with my students, uh, you know, to see Zaha Hadid's uh, museum there, which is an extraordinary building, but there are parts of it that are kind of like, oh, why did you do it? like this, like down at the material level and detailing and that kind of thing that just seem like kind of weird little mistakes or 
things that you can kind of learn from, oh, I wouldn't do it that way. One, a simple example, they have these elevated walkways with metal grates uh, on them. And then about five inches below that is a, a sheet of white, like, plexiglass, uh, translucent plexiglass that's lit from below. Oh, so you can see all the dirt. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's the thing. Great idea. I saw it, you know, two months after it opened, and it was a mess. And and there was no real obvious way to clean it. So interesting idea, but geez, you know, you got to do better than that. Uh, on that level of a profile, high profile. You got to think know. of the cleaning person first. Well, you know, to some degree, how how easy you know? is it to clean? Is a very it's a is a yeah. big word in my wife's life. Uh, yeah, like, absolutely, you got if it's not easy to clean, it it looks constantly dirty, especially on a high profile work like that, where yeah. everything else is like dialed in. Not everything else, but some of the big moves are really extraordinary. But then you get down to that level, and it's like, oh, just oh, really? <laughs> yeah, you know, so, it could ruin yeah. the experience. Yeah. Well, it does for somebody like me who's looking for those kind of things. Somebody else maybe who isn't looking for those kind of things. Maybe they, oh, no, it's extraordinary. Uh, and, and that's fine. Each person has their own experience of stuff. To some degree, I'm fated now forever to never just walk through, you know, blissfully. Oh, right, I, yeah. I, I, I'm trained and have trained myself and I'm training other people to look. To be observant, to be critical, to be critical, exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, see, yeah. conversations <laughs> happening. <man>. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, uh, yeah. man. Um, so I've just like it. Just been I'm thinking of like all the stuff that mm-hmm. I've been looking through lately. Um, one of the really iconic, or not, not iconic, but something that is just like you build what is the thing in um uh not saudi arabia it's in uh the tallest structure oh the burj khalifa yeah yeah, dubai dubai that's it in dubai i mean absolutely how the heck is that even possible yeah well uh, it's funny uh, we were talking about frank lloyd wright he designed a mile high tower uh way back when it obviously never got built uh the Burj Khalifa is what, like, mm, I want to say 1,500 feet tall, yeah, maybe, the, yeah, maybe closer to 2,000, yeah, something like that. I don't know. If, do, um, does it care? Should we look it up or does it eh, matter? It doesn't matter. Yeah. It's not a mile, put it that way. Whereas <laughs> uh, Frank Lloyd Wright made a proposal to build a mile-high tower. And the tower in Dubai... Not so much stylistically, but it owes a little bit, I think, to at least the people who designed that were aware of Frank Lloyd Wright's project. There's a kind of, uh, the way it gets more slender as it gets to the top, it's a very sort of vertically oriented thing, as most towers are, but, uh, but you know, I think there's a uh, kind of relationship, let's say, between Frank Lloyd Wright's proposal from way back when. I mm-hmm. think that was in like the nineteen early nineteen fifties that he designed that. Um, and it's interesting when you see pictures of it when he presented the idea. The drawing for it is uh, like twenty feet tall. Yeah, <laughs> it's a and they had this giant space and and he's standing at the bottom, you know, talking about it. And that was for effect, you know, like this thing is gonna be huge, right? But beautiful and slender and um so i don't know there there's always been a kind of as soon i 
even before, I was going to say, as soon as people figured out how to build tall, they wanted to build tall. And, and the I sky think, isn't even the limit. Yeah, that's why they call them skyscrapers. We're right. scraping the sky with yeah. it. Um, and uh, and so I, I think that that's going to keep happening. You know, I mean, um, I remember uh, when the Sears Tower, now called the Willis Tower in Chicago, uh, went up. Um, I was young, but I remember that thing. It was like 1973, I think, maybe, that that was completed. And that was the tallest building in the world. And uh, then, I forget what overtook it, Patronus Towers, maybe. Yeah, I think it's, yeah. Um, Those are all really tall buildings. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and so, like, even in our lifetimes, you know, there's been a kind of one-upsmanship that's been going on. And, you know, a lot of people would look at that and be like, well, it's just, it's a pissing match. It's it's people trying to outdo each other. And, yeah, well, I don't know, isn't that, that again, the human condition? Haven't <laughs> people always tried to outdo each other for better or worse? Look, um, mine's bigger. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I would love to go there. I mean, I, I, I don't really have an, a fear of heights, but they don't excite me either. <laughs> But the times I've been in really tall buildings, it's been a very, you know, kind of intense experience. And yeah. uh, I can't imagine going up that high, you know. Um, I've been in the Sears Tower, but I, I don't know how much taller the, the Burj Khalifa is from that. I, I At least a couple hundred feet, I would guess. But once you're up that high, I mean, what's a couple hundred feet, I well, guess? Well, just thinking about it makes my hands sweat. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It, my knees start to kind of get <laughs> and it's not again it's not that I'm afraid of heights what makes it happen is when I'm around other people in high oh, places yeah. for whatever reason because un, other people are unpredictable and it makes me like nervy I so he's going to shove somebody or jump or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just, it just doesn't make me feel good that's yeah. all and especially now you see people willfully Jumping with parachutes off of giant yeah, towers, base, base jumping. It's like, whew, man, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pass as well. Right, right, well right. You know, high uh, mortality rate on that one. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. yeah, stick to the uh, lower <laughs> right floors. Yeah, yeah. I uh, did try to jump off of uh, <laughs> uh, jungle gym we had in our backyard when I was I don't know maybe like seven or eight years old. I, I had a big kite. Uh, and I had I convinced myself that it would function as a hang glider. Why not try? <laughs> it didn't. And, uh, and yeah, I, I kind of twisted my ankle coming. <laughs> I did the same thing, but with an yeah. umbrella. Thank you, Mary Poppins. <laughs> awesome. Right, yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. It just went boom, <laughs> boom, <laughs> tore it inside out. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Like, uh, what's the, uh, that's a, a wily coyote kind of thing too. Seems yeah. like I've seen that happen on that. Oh cartoon. yeah, definitely yeah. A cartoon or something. But. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess uh, we're not talking about architecture. Nah, the hell <laughs> Time for another beer, then almost. Yeah. How are we doing on your questions? No, oh, well, the, the things with questions are. Yeah, it I, takes the, you somewhere. Well, the way that I try to do an interview mm-hmm. is, I just sit there and I. Just do a bunch of questions. Yeah. Whatever comes into my head. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, what's your favorite color? What do you know? Anything. Just yeah. put it all down and then try to call. Yeah. Just and then yep. Yep. so, you know, and then and then it's not really all that polite, I think, 
to have interview yeah. questions here. Yeah, How yeah. can I pay attention to you if I'm paying attention to this piece of paper? Questions, right. But if I need to get some information out of you mm-hmm. and I have a very specific question that I want to ask, I will have that written down that I'll yeah. have in front of me and I'll do that. But right, right, this right. is a, right. you know, it's a conversation. That's right. What, what the That's hell does right. that even mean? I like it's a it. made up word. No, but it is fully grown on me. I dig it. Well, I like the little, I like the graphic up there. Yeah, my nephew did that. That's, oh, really? The same yeah. nephew that grows pot? Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. He's a, cool. He has a degree in graphic design. Oh, nice. Oh, I think you guys talked about that. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. And I look different. I mean, <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. is, what, is there something like uh, you wanted to talk about about architecture? No, I, I really just came into this not knowing <laughs> at all yeah. uh, where this was going to go. So it's Me been either. fun so far. Yeah, good. Yeah. I'm glad. I mean, I, I hope, I, I doubt that I'll go away, but I I don't know. I'll probably go away and be like, oh, I should have brought this up, but well, probably not. I don't know. This has been fun and freewheeling and, yeah. you know, okay, it's a so big subject. If there's a, if, the, if money mm-hmm. and uh, resources were not a, a problem, what would you build? Hmm. What would you What would you architect? Is that a word? Is that what you could say? Would, eh, would you design? I don't like, yeah, design is the word that I would use. So uh, we don't want to we don't want to make architect of a verb. No, I don't. I don't. You want to architect something? No, no. Okay, okay architects pass on design that. Design things. Okay. <laughs> architects don't architect things. Uh, uh, I don't know that I would do anything different than what I'm already doing in the sense of. Uh, I am constantly messing with where I live, especially like the garage and garden and that kind of thing. I, I just, it's not so much, uh, did you say money and time? Resources. Resources. Time, time, consider time is the thing. Yeah. Money and resources aren't such a big deal because I, I enjoy most designing things, you know, uh, kind of on a low budget. Like uh, just taking readily available stuff. I I really like to reuse stuff. I spend a lot of time at Watson Carey. You know, um, and Watson Carey is a, basically a, yeah. they they definitely a lot of reusable things yeah. there. Yeah, um, for homes like you know yep. they, they they move houses and so you and can get, dismantle houses. Yeah, and that yeah kind you of can stuff, get doors right? and yep. toilets and yep. you windows. You name it. You and, name it. Uh, and so that I mean that's where I typically start most design projects. You know, all, there's exceptions to that. Like I just built a grape arbor uh, for our grape vine that produces like crazy, and I had been patching that thing together for years with limbs that I had cut out of a hedge that I've been working on for a long time, like big, you know, fifteen foot long pieces of uh, uh, hawthorn and that kind of stuff. Hmm. Um, and it, you know, it would blow over in the wind and it was just, it was kind of cobbled together and it was a mess. So finally I, I actually went out and got some pressure treated lumber and, you know, some four by four posts and stuck them into concrete in the ground and, um, and knock on wood, that thing's not going anywhere anytime soon. But I just, I don't know. I like the simple direct fixing things and building stuff and changing things. Like if I had time, I'd build more light fixtures and furniture and that kind of stuff. Uh, I, that's, that's where I guess I I should, I should say it has to be useful. 
there has to be a reason for me to to build something or do something. That's a critical component. It's not I don't design something for the fun of designing it, uh, even though that's nice. I but I frankly I'd rather go out and draw. Um, that's something that I do a lot of. Uh, is just I draw existing places. That's a it's something that I take a lot of enjoyment out of. Um, so designing for me, there has to be a kind of pressing need, a purpose behind it. Uh, I'm not just going to design something for kicks. Basically, I would rather go draw or garden or play guitar or brew beer or go mushroom hunting. Found some nice morels last week, by the way. Lucky dog. Yeah. Um, I've got a million other things kind of calling my name in terms of hobbies and that kind of stuff. Uh, so unless there's a pressing need to design something, I'm off doing other things by and large. But if I had a lot more time and, you know, people that were interested in buying stuff that I might design, mm-hmm. eh, I could see that changing. Yeah. So you, you, you're not really open for business? No. Teaching is a full-time job. It's more than a full-time more than job. Full-time, and, yeah. and it has been especially a tenure track position, which, you know, thankfully I'm, I have now been promoted to full professor. Ah, high yeah, five. Right. Way to go, man. Yeah, you right. made it. Yeah. yeah now it's time been... for whiskey in the drawer. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Sit down. Let's talk about your future. You like scotch, don't you? There was a, somebody told me a joke about uh, like uh, when you're an assistant professor, um, you know, you wouldn't even think to take a nap during the day. When you're an associate professor, you nap, uh, but with your office door closed. <laughs> but then when you become full professor, you can take a nap in your office with the door wide open. Oh, I've never I done see. that, oh, but I, and I can't a imagine. attitude, yeah, maybe. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. But no, that happened a couple of years ago, and that was good. It was a long, hard road to get there, and, um, you know, not without uh, some real bumps in that road. Um, but, uh, you know, did what I needed to do. Uh, wrote and illustrated three books on my way to making that happen and lots of other stuff. So uh, it, I just haven't had time to consider, you know, being a, a kind of professional designer mm-hmm. outside of teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now that I've made it past that final promotion, um, my interest has much more to do with kind of refocusing on home and, um, the landscape around my house and gardening and uh, not raking myself over the coals quite like I used to, um, you know, living a, a better life, basically, uh, minimizing my levels of stress and that kind of stuff. Uh, that is something I'm enjoying. And I should, I probably should have said this first, more than anything, really, really loving teaching. Like, that's why I got into this in the first place. And um, all of the stuff that you have to do to to be successful on the tenure track was uh, valuable and enriching, not just for me, but I think for my students and hopefully colleagues, etc. But but really, I, I enjoy teaching. And that's what getting promoted has allowed me to refocus on. You hear about a lot of people in academia, once you get to, 
uh, full professor, like we were just saying, you know, start to phone it in and don't really uh. care too much. Uh, you know, I feel that way a little bit in the direction of certain uh, service-oriented tasks, <laughs> committee work and that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. I'm not quite so interested in that, but the teaching, my God, it's so much fun now without uh, with, with time to to develop what I'm really there to do and to work with students in a way that is really, you know, genuine and helpful. And um, so that's the thing that, that has been a difference in getting through that final gate of promotion. <laughs> yeah, and so is your, like when you're, what, what do you teach like uh, architecture 101 or do you start now at your 300 level? Or uh, I teach design studios, which might uh, do that at a couple of different levels. So a design studio is typically about 15, 16 students and one faculty member. And uh, it's three hours a day for three days a week. So Ooh, Monday. That's a commitment. Yeah. It's a six credit course. So Monday, Wednesday, wow. Friday afternoons. What you, what, what, six credits? Yeah, six credits. That's for, like half your load or a third yeah, of a, yeah, of a, a full third. semester. Uh -huh. Yep. And that's always been the case in, well, at least as long as I've been involved in architectural education. Uh, and the idea behind the design studio is that it is the place where everything else comes together. If you're in an art history course or a drawing course or whatever, that it's in the studio where you're bringing all of that stuff to bear on designing projects, on practicing how to design projects, right? And uh, and so that's a, a course that I teach at various levels, um, including in Rome. You know, that's a course that all the students who go to Rome, they're in a design studio that whole semester. And then uh, uh, I teach a bit of history in Rome, not so much back here, but uh, teach a Rome design history course. And Drawing courses, um, drawing is kind of, that's, uh, you know, the main thing that, that I think I bring to the table in terms of uh, skills for students to develop. Uh, I've been drawing a long time and studying why drawing is important. Uh, that was the bulk of my research papers that I was presenting at academic conferences and whatnot. Um, and so that's still very much what I bring to the table there. Uh, urban theory, that's a course that I'm teaching. That's a required course, but I'm teaching that in Rome. So it's a slightly different version of that course than a student would take back here in Moscow um, because we're looking specifically at that city uh, more so than kind of every city. We do look at, you know, the broad development of urban theory, but we have this incredible place right there, uh, right outside our front door to study. Um, yeah, those are the main courses that I do. Oh, I teach a, the big drawing course, uh, the freshman drawing course. So if you were a first-year student... In architecture? In or? architecture or interior design, you would take uh, Architecture 154, which is a three-credit drawing course in the spring. And so that's... Uh, I usually have... Well, the most I ever had in there was about 130 students. Whoa. Uh, these days, it's about 80. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, That's a fun course to teach. So you're saying that uh, art is, uh, drawing is so important to mm -hmm. architecture. So why is it so important to architecture? If I can do it all on a computer, mm -hmm. why do I need to know how to draw? Uh, well, for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, computers are really 
critically important as well mm-hmm. uh, in terms of communication, study, uh, their integration into the design process, etc. But um, okay, hold on just a yeah. second. So when mm-hmm. so if I'm in my mind, I think of blueprint. I think of like the stuff that's going to go to the the mm-hmm. contractor is a blueprint that has to be done on a computer. I assume. Uh, it doesn't have to be, but these days, by and large, it is, yes. Yeah. Okay. But it, it doesn't have to be. When I first got out of school, um, uh, the firms I was working for were just getting into using computers and uh, having them kind of take the place of construction documentation, those uh-huh. kinds of drawings. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, well, let me think, uh, late 90s, even then, early 2000s, um, at least a couple of firms that I spent time with were sort of moving back in the other direction, like uh, at least for, for, for particular uh, aspects of the design or uh, construction process. So one firm I worked for, for example, um, we do what typically separate the project into different phases. There's schematic design, then there's con, uh, design development, then there's construction documentation, then there's construction administration. So um, schematic design is kind of getting the ideas out and and getting uh, a client's kind of buy-in and, you know, information from them. You're kind of figuring it out together, but you're doing the drawing, right? And uh, this firm that I was working for, they made the decision at some point, like, we will not use the computer to draw until after schematic design because they saw that it was negatively affecting how they were approaching design projects and and the the kind of responses they were getting from clients um, in terms of well the resp- the the sort of responses they were getting you know a lot of times clients they see a, a computer generated drawing, not generated, but a, a, a drawing that was uh, created using digital software and hardware um, and might think that uh, that the design process isn't still open, you know, whereas, oh, whereas like a final. Hand, yeah, huh. where that's, that's one response that this firm was finding they were getting from people mm-hmm. and that that was detrimental to kind of continuing the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, you know, speed had something to do with it. There, there's kind of a blanket assumption that, oh, computers must be faster. Well, oh, oh, not the drugs. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, but that's not always the case that, that the computer is by definition the quicker way to do something. Hmm. Um, and that's why, you know, a pencil and, a roll of trace paper, like if you're really trying to get ideas out and move through ideas quickly and explore options and, uh, an eraser is useful. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're going to go, yeah, uh, my thought right, is, you, right, right, you wanna, right. okay, yep, here's this, yep, oops, yep, yep. here's this yep. idea. Okay. Let's, we're going to take out that wall. Again. Let's try it again. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And so there's a kind of immediacy and flexibility that's inherent in that way of exploring ideas. Um, there can be with a computer too. It's not like I. It, I guess the ultimate point is, they're not the same. There was a kind of assumption early on that the computer will merely replace the pencil or pen, and that they're they're just two ways of doing the same thing. What we've learned 
uh, is that they're good at different things. Yes, they can do the same thing, but the pencil isn't so good at doing this set of tasks and the computer isn't so good at doing that set of tasks. So kind of having had now, what is it, uh, 30-ish years of uh, the computer in both academic design studios and in professional design studios, we now have a fair amount of understanding of it. You know, people have dug in their heels in various ways and, you know, I will never give up my pencil or I will never give up the computer. Um, but the, the mistake is assuming that they're equivalent because they're not. And so the way that I advocate using uh, hand drawing in particular in academia is first and foremost as a mode of learning. So when I bring students to Rome, there is nothing that can uh, substitute for sitting in front of some important place or a place that, that you find compelling and trying to draw it in your sketchbook by hand. Looking at it, drawing. Looking at it, drawing. Looking at it, drawing. Snapping a digital photograph of it is ultimately meaningless, especially if that's all you do. You end up with thousands and thousands of, of images that you will almost surely never go back to and, and critique one that's, by one. I think everybody's phone is full of those. Exactly. Uh, but having a sketchbook that slowly but surely starts to fill with information that you have filtered through your eyes, through your hand, through your ability or lack of ability to draw... Uh, through different materials, pencil, pen, watercolor, whatever it is, um, with notes, you know, maybe you glue stick in a ticket stub for a museum. I mean, you know, maybe write journal entries. Boy, I didn't feel good this morning or whatever it is. It's personal and it's a learning process. And it has been shown scientifically that it, it is a really, really good way of learning things to actually draw while you're trying to learn. And in our field, where it is so much about graphic communication, you can't just tell somebody how to build that wall. It's a lot easier to show them how to build that wall. So graphic communication is central to what we do, whether it's on a computer or not. And so learning about existing architecture, we know that that's more effectively done with an, what we call an analog device in our hand, a pen or a pencil. Uh, that taking the time to struggle through drawing something, capturing mm -hmm. something, uh, or, you know, to pick it apart, to critically analyze it, to, you know, instead of just drawing what it looks like, to say, wow, this is actually, there's a square there, and there's, you know, a half circle there, and kind of picking apart the composition of what it is that we're studying. Uh, all of those things implant, all of that experience and those places in your mind so that when you're back in Moscow, Idaho, sitting at your desk and you've been given a design project, that stuff comes out. You've got something to literally and figuratively draw from that you've learned through the act of drawing, and now that's starting to come out. And so that's, that's what, one of the things, there are others, but that's one of the, the most important things about drawing by hand that it is such an incredibly effective way of learning about the world around you. And then, and doing it in a way that's also building your skill for communicating graphically with other people. 
on the fly instantaneously. Like I can't tell you the, the times that, uh, that I've sat like this across the table from a client who, you know, maybe they're designing an office or whatever. And, Just and spouting ideas and yep. And I can draw, you know, like so that they can understand the drawing right there in front of them, the power that that has had in, and I, I, have heard this from many, many other designers too, but I know I've experienced it. Like the way that people's eyes light up, that you can actually do that, that that you, you can hear what they say and then represent it, represent to represent that to them in a graphic way. It just, it, uh, it ignites a good, um, effective design process and effective collaboration between client and designer. Mm -hmm. If you're able to do that. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I had to say, well, let me, you know, kind of work this up in my computer and bust out my iPad. Yeah, maybe. Well, an iPad, that's just a different thing to draw on. You know, I, I, I got no problem with that. If you've got a tablet and you're drawing freehand on the tablet, then yeah, great. And that has another advantage that you can then go, click, click, and email that image to the person. I mean, there are, there are advantages to that. Uh, but the skill has to be there first, <laughs> you know? And that skill, I think, is, is most effectively acquired through the act of a lot of drawing by hand. Yeah, like you any other it. skill. Yeah, no. like speaking. It's a different way of speaking. Uh, and to get good at it, you have to do it a lot, Right. Um, and that's what drawing is. And you can't expect somebody who hasn't done it much to do it well or to do it in a natural way where it just sort of flows off their hand. Um, but that takes a lot of practice. Once you have it, it never goes away, which is one of the disadvantages of the digital realm is, you know, software updates every couple of years or a completely new software program no yeah yeah yeah. Uh, yeah. depending on which uh let's say if you work for architecture firms mm -hmm. we use x software right i think you did you and i talk about that once in reference to audio yeah i used to use cool edit 96 i think it was called to do all of my recording now i can't access those original files those digital audio files because i don't have a version of cool edit. Well, if it, it doesn't exist on, anymore to, to kind of digress a bit, but <laughs> yeah. the, but the, those audio files, you can still yeah. get, read those audio files. You just need, but not the, the sessions. Like if they were multi-tracked, yeah, uh, you, I, I could reload it. You probably could. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because Adobe Audition bought right, that right, right, years right. and years ago. So yep, I, I yep. believe that you can, I, I can't yeah. say that for certain, but uh, that's what I use as Adobe Audition because I, yeah. I work for a university and I get it. Dirt yeah. cheap, right? Right, uh, right, right. Won't won't yeah. say how cheap because it will make everybody <laughs> mad. Yeah, yeah, it would make me mad. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I use uh, what is it? Uh, um, Ableton, Ableton Live. Hmm. Yeah, never heard of that. Uh, it's mainly for like kind of electronic music producers, but mm-hmm. I've made it work for recording and multi-tracking, and it's, yeah. it's nice. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, dead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, back when I start, <laughs> when I was starting, it was all on eight, like uh, they call them carts. Oh yeah, carts. Like, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. It looked like looked like an eight track. 
and it would it have like mm-hmm. you know thirty second card, fifteen second card, forty yep. second card, yep. minute whatever. Yeah. You put songs on those. Right. Another way is like reel to reel, and then yeah. record on reel to reel. But mm-hmm. the the thing I miss about reel to reel is you could get some really cool effects without having to know what button to push just by huh. slowing it down. Oh yeah. Or yeah, speeding, yeah. It speeding it up. Speeding it up. Or mm-hmm. you know just just maybe like putting your finger on it just to, uh-huh. just a little uh-huh. bit to get just to change the the. How how the, it's being recorded on the tape? Yep, yep. Uh, but you know, now we're all digital. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, for for <laughs> good and not so good. Yeah, you but, know, but then again, I could sit here and go click click. Okay, edit out that uh, cough. Edit out right. that whatever. Right, right, right. You know? That makes it easy. Oh yeah. god, because yeah, yeah, there's yeah. no way in yeah. hell you're gonna no, edit no, out no, a, no, no. like a splicing tape. I can cut out, I can yeah. cut out parts of breath. Yeah, you know. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I won't go back. <laughs> but well, neither will I. That's the thing. It, it's uh, because I don't see, you know, speaking of drawing, I don't see it as going back. Uh, it's not, again, either or. Like, I, I think the key is to know what tool you're using for what purpose and to try and find the best tool for that purpose. And Such uh, is man. Yes. I mean, that's what exactly. we, we are tool users. That's exactly. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's to me, the difference between analog drawing and digital drawing. They're both super important for different reasons, uh, and in different settings and different purposes. Um, whereas, uh, you know, for a lot of years, I, I think there's still a lot of people out there who, who sort of see them interchangeably and wonder, well, why would I draw that way? Why would I draw that way? You know, well... If you think about it more carefully, then you might have some reasons uh, to do it this way versus that way. No. Yeah. So is there like a, what do you require of students? Do they have to have like art 101 before they get to yeah. drawing? Yeah. This, uh, here at the University of Idaho, we're, we're more uh, art based than a lot of other schools. Um, we're not the only one that does it this way by any means, but, uh, a lot of schools, the architecture program will actually be, uh, like in the college of engineering and have a much more kind of technical focus as opposed to, uh, our approach, which we start with art, art foundations, we call it where, yeah, it's about graphic communication. It's about graphic literacy and kind of understanding the meaning behind um, not just graphics, but uh, process and um, form and space and that kind of stuff and and expression, like uh, ideas. You know that that um, that architecture and design is fundamentally about ideas and people, and um, it's not just uh, you know structure and um, that kind of thing. So. Uh, that's one of the reasons I like it here at Idaho is that, that it is, um, art heavy and that as somebody, I think of myself as an artist to some degree, um, your art's really nice. I mean, you have it hanging oh, up thanks. and you do, it's, yeah. it's really yeah. nice. It really is. It's right pretty. Cause you do, it's like, uh, you do pencil and then art, uh, pen and ink. Type uh, stuff. pen and ink, watercolor. Yeah. 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 Look, it's awesome. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I like to. Walk, you I like write, to walk the talk. <laughs> you, did, you didn't write three books on how to do it and then be That's bad true. at it. Right? That, well, yeah. <laughs> Come I hope. on. Yeah. yeah. I hope, yeah. 
Yeah. And so that, what's, well, let's say mm-hmm. if anybody's listening and they want to get one of your books, yeah. let's let, you know, plug them. What, what oh, they? Uh, well, the first one is called Sketching on Location. And it's Matt Brain, but it's, uh, yeah. spell mm-hmm. your last name. Uh, B-R-E-H-M. Yeah, there mm-hmm. you go. I, I know they're available, one of them at least uh, is available on Amazon. If yeah, all three are, okay. are out there on Amazon. Sketching on Location came out first. That was... Uh, that, it was sort of done as a university textbook. The publisher really didn't get the price down to where I thought it should be because they were, you know, yeah. the, the idea is that it's a required textbook. Oh. And so they've, you know, they want to make Triple as much per copy. Quadruple the price. Yeah. Um, I still think it's a great book. And I, I have been talking with the publisher a little bit about kind of repackaging it and making it more of a mass market kind of book. Okay. But yeah. Uh, but anyway, that one's out there sketching on location. The second one is called Drawing Perspective. And as the title suggests, it's about utilizing an understanding of perspective, how, per, how visual perspective works um, through uh, kind of common objects like cardboard boxes and stuff. Like if you can learn to see how perspective works, then the theory is that, that you can utilize that more easily as a way to help you uh, create drawings that have a kind of visual accuracy to them. Uh, that one is, actually includes the work of about 30 other artists in, a, in addition to all of the diagrams and my own drawings that uh, are all the way through the book. Um, and that one also has been translated into, at last count, nine other languages. Cool. Uh, yeah. Bulgarian and Hungarian among them, and uh, Korean, Japanese, Chinese, Spanish, French, German, Italian. It's pretty cool because I, I have been into bookstores in Rome, and uh, there it is on the shelf. How cool Italian. is that? Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, yeah, that, uh, that's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> Do you go in there and like secretly sign the book? Uh, no, but I do put them in more prominent places. We're going to take you out for my book. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, gr- what a guerrilla no marketing. Yeah. Uh, and then the other one is called uh, Draw Buildings and Cities in 15 Minutes. And it's part of a what? series of how-to drawing books where the, the kind of hook is in 15 minutes. Like, draw faces in 15 minutes. Draw, you know, dogs in 15 minutes. And mine is the one that's about architecture. Uh, and that one's actually been translated into uh, Dutch, as far as I know. I, I think they they had plans to do more translations, but I don't know where that stands right now. What is it called again? Yeah. Draw Buildings and Cities in 15 Minutes. Wow. Yeah, and that's that book will... Um, that series of books is uh, a series that you often see at um, museum bookstores book and that kind of uh-huh. thing. So that's kind of that... It's three different publishers that have done these three different books. Actually, a whole host of different publishers ended up doing the translations on the second book. But, uh, um, but anyway, this the the last one is one that uh, hopefully is in a lot of museum bookstores right now. Um, so yeah, those are the three books that I've done, and uh, feels good to have them done. I did not enjoy writing them. I have to say that <laughs> you did three of them. You hated doing it, but you did three. Uh, yeah, there were times, man. I, it was it was not easy putting books together. is is super hard work. I've heard that. Why yeah. why why these in particular? I don't know. I just I, for one thing because they it's not just writing. 
uh, it was writing and illustrations. Oh, and yeah. the illustrations have to be done a certain way. And um, and I was using, uh, for the last book, I used my tablet uh, PC like, to do all of those illustrations. I did all of those on the computer because the, the idea was that I can do it anywhere, right? You know, I could be on an airplane working on this book, but I don't want to be on an airplane working on that book. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sitting on an airplane thinking about how much I don't want to be working on that book. Uh, so <laughs> Working on the book. <laughs> right. Um, anyway, they, they, that's part of it. So the graphics are part of it. Um, and, you know, publishers, I think their whole shtick is just to set goals that are as unreasonable as possible, knowing that authors are going to slack on it or miss a deadline or whatever. Um, but I'm the kind of person that, like, when you put a schedule in front of me, it's like I, I just sort of assume it to be real. And I'm not saying I didn't blow through a couple of deadlines on those books, but... Uh, it was pretty intense getting those done. The, the second and the third one, um, for both of those, I was in Rome in the summer teaching when I finished both of those books and in an apartment where there was no air conditioning. We were just talking about air conditioning Yeah. Uh, in July and it was just brutally hot and my computer was overheating and I was under two different deadlines from two different publishers so every night after I got done teaching, I'd go home and I'd have like two fans on me and then the power would go out, you know, like in the city <laughs> and wow. uh, just immediately you're sweating. It, that was nightmarish. That was like a Kafka-esque, like <laughs> you finishing those two books, but I got them done. And, you know, there is really, there's not much that's cooler than getting the first printed copy in the mail and it's like wow that's sweet and then yeah walking into a bookstore halfway around the world and there it is that's super sweet yeah so glad they're done <laughs> <laughs> you got another one in yet you're thinking about doing I, another one i have thought about it i've got probably two or three ideas for other books but i just i'm in no hurry to subject myself to that again you know i think it's like everybody's yeah. like at least mm -hmm. i think people at least in the united states have this idea of like mm -hmm. yeah I'd, I'd like to write a book someday but sure, they have go for it yeah <laughs> And everybody I've any interview I yeah. ever hear is like it's it's so it's difficult, easy. yeah, to write it's a book. Not yeah. easy. And when I think of like uh, yeah. how people complain about uh, recently with like, uh, excuse me, like um, uh, Game of Thrones and George R. Yeah. R. Martin and those thick books. Yeah. And he says he's a slow writer, and then people are complaining that the books are not out. <laughs> right, right. You fucking right, right. Like, yeah, come absolutely. on. Where, yeah, yeah. Where, where's your imagination? Mm -hmm. So yep. let the man take his yeah. time. Yep. Well, you get complaining about what he's done already. Yeah. No. Yeah. It's, you've enjoyed it. Then let him take his time because it's not an yeah. easy process. No, it's not. I'm also, I'm a bit of a perfectionist and, you know, I can say both with pride and uh, a kind of, I don't know, I guess pride. <laughs> the first book that I did when I submitted it for editing, uh, this was uh, 44, 45,000 words, something like that. Jeez. Um, came back with, uh, I think it was like four corrections, 
but those had to do like with punctuation and stuff and three kind of suggestions about maybe you want to use this word instead of that one. Like seven from a draft. The editor. Yeah, because I, I'm that much of a perfectionist. Like I I wouldn't submit it until I was sure I got everything right. Uh, and I'm not someone who uses spell check and those kinds of automated things in Word or whatever program. Uh, I just, I really, you know, I wrote it and uh, was sure that what it said was what I wanted it to say. And that, you know, I'm proud of that, but that creates an enormous amount of angst when you're in the middle of it, you know, when you're so kind of, you know, uptight about getting it right. But in the end, then it comes back and, hey, yeah, you can make these three changes and you might want to make these four changes. Really? That's it? That's yeah. it? Okay, cool. <laughs> I guess we're done. <laughs> Time for a drink. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> so wow. so that you know, part of it is just it's uh, it's built in. Like I'm maybe not the kind of person who should be writing a lot of books. <laughs> yeah. Um, th- does that also translate into architecture for you as well? We're trying to get it perfect. Yes. Like, cause yeah. I would imagine yeah, yeah. that, that you yep. kind of have to have, uh, that gets drilled into you before yeah. it goes out. It has to be perfect. Otherwise, yeah. I mean, people's lives may literally be on the line if, it, if yeah. there's a major yeah. flaw in there somewhere. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that many of the decisions I was making were, were quite that extreme, but, uh, you know, usually we had engineering consultants and that kind of thing. And it's a team of people. It's not so much like a single person, you right. know, with that kind of responsibility. But again, the, the goal is yeah. to yeah. have it as perfect as possible oh, so that it meets, checks all absolutely. the boxes of yeah, yeah. safety, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I worked for different firms that had different kind of philosophical positions on that. Not eh, philosophical is too strong a word, but uh, where... You know, I mentioned the phases before where we had schematic design, design development, Mm -hmm. construction documentation, and then construction administration. Each of those phases typically is its own contract with the client Mm -hmm. and or uh, the contractor. And, uh, And so some firms I worked for during the design or the uh, construction documentation phase would be like really, really uptight. We can't get anything wrong. Everything has to be perfect because we want to save money in the next phase, construction administration. Whereas if the drawings and documents that go out of the office are, if they're sloppy, then we're going to have to spend a lot of time, you know, correcting our own mistakes Hmm. in the next phase. Mm -hmm. And then I worked for another firm that had kind of the opposite attitude. Like, we're going to spend a bunch of money on construction administration anyway. We don't want things to be sloppy, but there was a lot of decisions being made. Like, we'll work that out later. Let's, you know, give another attitude toward that is to give the contractor some involvement in doing things the way she or he thinks would be best mm. uh, during that phase. And so kind of giving more more uh, opportunity to do things differently uh, rather than everything has to be perfectly spelled out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, I remember like being project manager and <laughs> there were times where... I mean, I knew the drawings and I knew the specifications so intimately that 
I'd get a phone call and it would be from a subcontractor, you know, asking a question or something. And it was like, there were times where as soon as they started to ask a question, I knew exactly where I had fucked up oh. on a drawing and knew exactly where this was going. And, you know, would immediately just start reaching for the drawings and be like, okay, how am I going to explain this? Because I just, yeah, you get so intimately involved in crafting everything. You know it. Because it's not like you, you touch a drawing once. You, you touch it a thousand times before it goes out the door. You work on it. You rework on it. You rework on it. Um, you're correcting other people's input on that and vice versa. And so by the time it goes out, if you're good at it, you know everything that's on every page, basically. And you know what's not there. You know you know what decision maybe you didn't make or you had to punt or you just the deadline came and this doesn't match that. This yeah. drawing on this page doesn't quite match that drawing on that page. Rah. Yeah, as a so, friend of mine says, yeah. sometimes done is better than perfect. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, you know the dean at the time uh, of my college the, when I finished the first book. Um, I was expressing to him how I was struggling to get it done, and he said something like, "You know, the best book is the completed book, or something." Yeah. You know, yeah. and because he knew, I think, uh, you know, how I was really tearing myself up trying to make it right but there again i getting that email back from the publisher saying we have a couple of suggestions yeah. <laughs> it's like sweet <laughs> you know yeah, i did it well <laughs> so your firm would is more concerned about getting it done right the, yeah, the, the, the I don't initial know. phase initial i don't know if that's the attitude that i would take if i were running a firm hmm. that's me being my own boss that's the other thing, though, about writing books or creating books is that it's a lonely process. Hmm. It's you and, or at least that was my experience on all three of these. You know, you get input from the publisher periodically, but you know what you have to produce before you submit it to the publisher. And uh, it's it's lonely. You're just, you know, it's you trying to create this stuff or... Finding a million reasons to procrastinate, you know, because uh, I'm a very productive procrastinator. I'll find. <laughs> <laughs> That's a beautiful combination of words, if there ever was. Well, I, I'm not a frivolous procrastinator. I don't. I don't screw around and, and not get something done. Uh, but the something <laughs> that needs to be getting done is not always what really needs to be getting done. So. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. yeah, productive procrastination. That's uh, I, I forget where I sprung on that, but it's been years since I've used that expression. <laughs> I, I love it. I, I think I'm going to be using that after this. <laughs> yeah, right, right. yeah, yeah. But yeah, I book writing. I don't know if I'm going to get back into that anytime real soon. I, I'm enjoying teaching too much. I'm enjoying gardening too much, and that kind of thing. So the book writing, I don't know. We'll we'll see. The, all three of those books uh, originated with a publisher contacting me and saying, hey, we'd like you to do a book. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, the middle one, the drawing perspective one, a, a close friend of mine in the drawing world um, uh, was going to do that book, but decided uh, that he wasn't going to end up having time to do it. And so he recommended that they contact me to pick it up and run with it. And so 
Um, but it really at that stage was just kind of a proposal. And, uh, and so I said, yeah, okay, let's do it. Uh, but the, uh, the first one and the third one, I, yeah, the, it was always, you know, I got contacted by a publisher like, Hey, are you interested in doing this book? And yeah. Okay. The first one was, they wanted me to do a book. They didn't have an idea for what that should be. And so I came up with that on my own and wrote the whole thing on my own. Uh, whereas the 15 minutes book, this, we have the series of books. We want you to do one about architecture. Okay. Uh, so I don't know if another publisher comes knocking and the deal looks good, then, uh, hint, hint. Yeah, right. Just, all the publishers yeah. that listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. I'm, I'm not in any hurry to get back into book writing. We'll put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> yep. What else, Matt? I don't know. What are, what are there? Do you have any other things we haven't talked about in terms oh, man, of I think architecture? Broadly speaking, um, it's there's so much. I just, um, I don't know what's next for you, Matt. Just to continue to teach. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as I said before, you know, as long as I can get students to get psyched about going to Rome, I'll keep doing that. Um, you know, helping my wife at the restaurant when I can and how I can. I you know go in there on Friday evenings occasionally to wash dishes <laughs> and and that's a pretty fun thing to do i can just get into his own in the dish pit and enjoy that uh gardening hey, is by the way there's a there's a documentary you might i think it's on where did i see that could be on youtube yeah a documentary on dishwashers oh really it was really good oh i'm gonna have to watch it's, that. it's, it's actually really well done yeah I'm talking about how important it is yeah that people's dishes are clean oh and that this yeah, is yeah, not yeah. just some job you come in here and you're all messed up no. and it's like you know it's it's <laughs> It's a it's a professional it's a health they, issue, they, big health issue, and they take it yeah. very seriously yeah. Yeah. that their yeah. dishes go out very yep. clean. So yeah, I'm gonna have to see that. Yeah, because yeah. I that's another thing. Like I, you know, being a a perfectionist, like I really, but I it's meditative. It's it's just kind of flows. You know, you get into it. Uh, yeah, I've enjoyed that. Um, yeah, I don't know uh, teaching and. Where, well, what's a, yeah. so? Where where do you want to take the teaching? Uh, it, it's where I want it to be right now. To be perfectly honest with you, um, just you know, because it's always new. It's always there's always new students. There's uh, you know always more to learn. That's that's why I got into teaching. Was the first time I did it, I realized how much you have to really love to learn in order to teach reasonably well. Like, uh, that's what it's about to me, is uh, I'm curious about the world, I'm curious about stuff. Uh, architecture is the perfect thing because it ties together so many different aspects of mm -hmm. life and the world. Um, and sharing that with students who are, uh, in many ways, just discovering some of those things. Uh, I, and I learn a ton from students, you know, from their perspective, from their, uh, energy and, um, uh, yeah, I, I just, it, it's an ever refreshing, uh, field, uh, that I have found myself in. And so, and it, it, it's intensely frustrating at times, you know, and, uh, but then you know that it can be really, really rewarding too, and that it takes a lot of diligence and kind of, 
you know, reworking things and questioning my own assumptions about how I'm teaching what I'm teaching. And um, so, uh, yeah, I, I don't see myself ever getting to some point where, yeah, okay, this is easy and I know what I'm doing. It's just, it's constantly surprising. And again, to do it reasonably well, I have to constantly be learning and uh, trying to do better. Um, uh, so I, I don't see myself ever getting to a point where teaching is done or I am where I want to be. I, I am appreciative of the fact that I don't have to worry so much about my position, you know, uh, like just you know, that sucks. If, if you've got to worry about that, I, I was an adjunct professor for four years and, um, not that I was worried about not getting hired again the next semester or quarter, as it were, in Oregon. Uh, but knowing that there was no sort of contractual obligation, you know, that at any point they could be like, oh, now we just hired somebody permanent and, you know, we don't need you anymore. And the fact that I wasn't getting benefits, etc. So I've been there in that tenuous kind of place uh, in, in academia. And I'm really glad I'm not there anymore. <laughs> Really glad I'm not there, which again allows me to really revel in teaching and all of its complexity and joy and you know frustration and all of it. Uh, but that's a ever changing, ever ongoing thing. So uh, you know that's that's where I that's where I'm going. <laughs> yep. To 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 round it out, yep. much like architecture. Yeah. It's always growing, always expanding, always learning new things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I, I think unless you have something else you want to add. Nope. Nope. Just going to finish this beer. Yeah. Thanks for coming Cheers. in. Cheers, man. <laughs> thanks, thanks again, man. Really appreciate it. Likewise. Thanks for having me, Tom. Goodbye. Wow. So much knowledge that man has about architecture. Uh, blows me away. I, I think I've said it a couple times. It blows me away. Still blown away. Being blown away now. But thank you for listening to Conversations. I'm Tom Cocaine. And don't forget, uh, like, subscribe, share Conversations with the world. I think that's all I got. Thanks again. I'm Tom Cocaine. Over and out. <laughs>